everybody this is wrong real episode 515 the podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from jean-luc godard to jean-luc picard and now today we have recurring guest filmmaker simon o'neill from dublin ireland we're going to be talking about our part two of the great raymond chandler his favorite writer in our previous episode which was wrong real 505 we talked about the best movie adaptations of his novels and today we're going to be talking about the best movies that he worked on as a screenwriter that were not based on his fiction but mr o'neill welcome back to wrong real uh thank you james yeah nice to nice to be back um yeah i've followed up with a with a message saying that seeing as we'd done all those, um, with, since, since we'd explored those uh, films made from his novels, it might be interesting to explore the ones that, that he came from another angle that weren't to do with his fiction. Uh, and some of them were obviously uh, incredible movies. And he had an interesting sort of checkered career in Hollywood in the 40s. I just think that, you know, it was like a siren call Everyone was working there. Faulkner was working there. In the 30s, Scott Fitzgerald was working there. You know, they just hoovered up these writers and chewed them up and spat them out. And pretty much did the same with Raymond Chandler. You know, it was kind yeah, of like absolutely. a given. Did you ever read the Pat like, Hobby stories, The those short stories by Fitzgerald about um, basically it's the fictionalized adventures of a former uh, silent movie writer who's now trying to make the transition to talkies unsuccessfully and he's slowly but surely seeing his career be diminished and chipped away at but anyway for people out there who want to see what it's like to be a writer in the early 40s when you're on your way out as opposed to on your way up the pat hobby stories are absolutely <laughs> hysterical oh no i haven't but i, I have got a book of uh, scott Fitzgerald's short stories there maybe some of them are in them i haven't re- read it yet but a book i did read um it's called the disenchanted i don't know if you know that book uh it's a great name great title it's uh it's anthony burgess who wrote clockwork, uh, orange. clockwork orange yeah uh oh sorry no i'm mixing up who it is actually bud schulberg oh i love it. bud schulberg yeah he's incredible yeah. He's like what makes Sam- sammy run and uh, the yeah. harder they fall he and his father was a studio head exactly and he wrote on the waterfront and he um and he uh, facing re- the crowd he, yeah, big yeah. Big, well shit i think you just pitched a really cool episode bud schulberg down the road yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna nab that one. But but Bud Schulberg wrote a book called The Distant Chant, and basically when Bud Schulberg was about in his early twenties, kind of like a you know uh, a, the Barton Fink sort of 
early character. He'd had he'd written a few plays, or he wanted to, to be a screenwriter. So they they uh, brought him into the studio system. You're right; his, his dad was a studio executive, and they put him with an established writer who was Scott Fitzgerald, nice. and uh, who was totally you know in his cups at this stage, just, sloshed, you know, absolutely <laughs> sloshed all the time. You know, really got a very sort of dismissive view of Hollywood. He was just there to take the checks. Um, so this in the story, the disenchanted. You have the young writer, and then you have the older writer. Uh, his name in the book is Manly Halliday, and that's uh, that's the. And, and without question, the uh, Coen brothers would have read the disenchanted because the relationship, you know, the, the the it's very similar to the sort of Faulkner slash Fitzgerald character that you see in that film. But, oh, yeah, he was another- that, that character is so incredible. The way he's introduced. Like, not only is he vomiting in the bathroom stall, but it's like he's aggressively vomiting. He's like, Bleh! I mean, just hurling this guts up. But then he comes out and he's straightening his bow tie and he's getting, he's getting himself together and so on and so forth. And the depiction of that character was so goddamn funny. I, I, I love Barton Fink. It wasn't necessarily Coen Brothers' biggest uh, smash success, but it has some of their best commentary about movies. Yeah, and especially about that sort of 40s Hollywood. Um, There's another book as well uh, that I'm trying to think of uh, along similar lines. But yeah, The Disenchanted has definitely, definitely got a lot of uh, uh, the features that you see in Barton Fink. But obviously with Michael Lerner and everything, it's just fucking hilarious. And and, and, and as a film that captures that 40s Hollywood that we're talking about or going to be talking about here, uh, it's absolutely beautifully done. Absolutely. Well, what's cool about your pitch for today's topic is that it gives us a chance to explore two filmmakers that have been, for whatever reason, woefully neglected by the podcast. We have barely touched the subjects of Hitchcock and Billy Wilder in the past on this podcast, in spite of having done over 500 episodes. And they're two of my favorite filmmakers from that period. I have no idea why I've given them um, so little love, but we're going to make up for that today because we're going to be talking about Double Indemnity and Strangers on a Train, in addition to a couple other films. So I'm very excited. Obviously, this is a Raymond Chandler episode, but I'm just delighted that both Billy Wilder and Alfred Hitchcock are part of the story as well. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good way to hoover up those two amazing writers, and you know, like they, Chandler was not the first choice to work on either of those pictures, but you know, he ended up working on them to 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 varying degrees of success, and I think. Um, you know, Chandler was sort of an obstinate, like we, we mentioned before, you know, he was a brilliant, poetic, lyrical writer. But, you know, his, his personality, I mean, you know, it, it could be very charming and very witty, but it could also be a crabby old goat, you know, and he was because he was sort of he was at a certain age when he got to Hollywood where he didn't, you know, suffer fools. And so you have headstrong person like that put him with a headstrong person like Billy Wilder and another headstrong person like Alfred Hitchcock and there are going to be a bit of a tug of war and egos will be bruised and furniture will be thrown around the place. Or as I say these uh, days, they parted ways over creative differences. which That's my favorite euphemism in Hollywood because you know it has nothing to do about the creative process at all and everything to do with egos and big swinging dicks and so on and so forth. (laughs) And that's inevitably what happens. But that's part of the fun of watching these titanic storytelling forces collide. But before we get into all these uh, remarkable movies, do you want to plug, promote, or talk about anything you're working on in your own life as a filmmaker, writer, so on and so forth? Because I always tend to jump right into things, but you are my guest. So what what is going on in the the saga of Simon O'Neill? 
Uh, well, uh, you know, I uh, I'm one of the fortunate people who have been working through the pandemic. I mean, working from home. You know, I mean, I'm working for a publishing company essentially. You know, the couple of, got a couple of newspapers and a couple of radios, uh, and the um, I'm in the sort of commercial or slash creative side of that. You know, and the advertising side of that business has taken a beating. Obviously, people are cancelling stuff left, right, and centre. But it seems that the the newspaper side as the circulation has has risen is kind of it's it's above pre-pandemic levels so that you know so that's like a, a rough topsy-turvy thing like everyone else's business i'm just kind of fortunate to be able to do that from home uh sadly nothing to plug i i made an isolation video which was basically me uh, while I was at work, I'd go out and I'd put my mobile phone. Uh, I've got a bird bath in my garden, and I would put the phone there. And I'd, on the iPhone has this amazing camera, and I shot at 120 frames a second. And then I come back like a like a fisherman checking the line and see had anything flown into uh, into view. And I've got all these you know chaffinches and all these you know robins and all these ornately colored birds. And I edited that into a little. Uh, online isolation video, just sort of like letting out my inner David Atom there, just to nice. sort of keep. Now where can people Where can people find this? Uh, uh, they this... can They can find that on my Vimeo channel. Uh, I'm on Vimeo. I've got lots of you know. They've got all my old short films and things like that. And I was uh, that was kind of just really to stop me uh, driving myself to distraction. I'm working on a few fiction projects, and I also was due uh, April fifteenth. I was supposed to go to or, or end of April. I was supposed to go to Paris to shoot a short film with, I mean, I've shot quite a few short films and some of them have kind of done all right. And some of them, uh, I've, I've done well online or in festivals, but I was, I was, I was, I met a girl, uh, in France a while ago, Elizabeth, the producer, and I thought it'd be fun to try and do a bilingual, like it's in French and it's also in English. It's about an Irish couple in France, you know, on their honeymoon and, uh, they're going out for, a dinner and everything goes wrong. It's hilarious. And, you know, I thought that would be a nice subject, but Mr. Macron closed the cafes and the world shut down. So I unfortunately didn't get to nip in and do that beforehand because it could have been editing away during the, uh, pandemic while we're all closed yeah, down there are a lot of lucky people who got their shows and films finished right before everything shut down and they've been able to edit away and they've got all the time in the world and but yeah what i really feel the deep swell of pity for are those shows or movies where the shooting got arrested or interrupted because that's just murderous trying to mm. break down a crew break down your locations your sets and then reassemble and regain all that momentum or movies that are about to be released got postponed and then you're there you're trying to figure out when and where and how do we do our marketing campaign because if you keep doing multiple marketing campaigns and you keep pushing the movies start to feel old even if they haven't come out yet and they lose that new car smell so yeah we, we live in strange and troubling times but i guess yeah if you're doing something online it sounds like things are going relatively well on your end and also i've been able to crank out a lot of podcasts and videos so i guess we are some of the the, the lucky few but if you say you run a or own an athletic stadium Holy shit! Like <laughs> these are not good times. Yeah, not a absolutely. good time to to build a soccer stadium or something like that. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, the football is back here. Um, it's actually almost sort of a national day and morning here because uh, an old um, the, the the manager of the Irish national football team, Jack Charlton, who um, managed the Irish team through the sort of eighties and early nineties, passed away today at eighty five, and. Uh, people are just reliving their memories like uh, you know Ireland was a, was um a team that always had incredibly talented players all through the 70s um 
but for whatever reason couldn't coalesce it into a, a team that would go to a World Cup or European Championship. And then for, for you know for a number of reasons, uh, Jack Charlton came in and he took over the team uh, and just had a kind of gruff leadership style and a simple game plan and was blessed with very talented players. And then suddenly we were at World Cups and the country just went absolutely insanely crazy following the football team. Um, and I was actually in New York. I mentioned it the last time I was in New York in Eamon Duran's bar in uptown New York watching uh, Ireland in the Italia 90 World Cup. I googled it today to find out it's been closed since 2011. That's, oh, that's what happens. That's yeah, what my favorite bar time. in New York, well not my favorite, one of my favorite bars in New York just closed due to coronavirus. This place called Highlands, which is like three blocks west of me, had this epic single malt collection and I've been there for drinks with many wrong real contributors like Bill Scurry and Bill Tech and oh. had many, many fine evenings over there. It was my favorite watering hole in the neighborhood and walked by there the other day and they just said thank you everybody but so sorry like we're, we're closing our doors forever and that was a uh, yet another casualty of war but while we're on the subject of alcohol let's do a little primer on raymond chandler if people didn't hear the previous episode get people up to speed on who he was and where he was at his per- th- this period in his life and also i cut you off last summer we didn't get a chance to include your kind of your rankings of your favorite Mm. Raymond Chandler adaptations. So now's a chance to basically make up for lost time before we dive into these new movies on the agenda. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if you cut me off or whether that was a a mercy shooting or something like (laughs) that, because at that stage, as I said, I was kind of like an old uh, car trundling out of, you know, fumes just to, just to stop. Or or there's a, there's a great um, Writer here, Flan O'Brien, he, he he has this book, The Third Policeman, and it's uh, has this crazy, insanely madcap theory uh, about um, a molecular tra- uh, transfusion between uh, people and bicycles, uh, where people take on the characteristics of bicycles, and you'll see them sort of, you know, you see one of them leaning against the wall, but you'll never see him standing on his own. And if they're walking down the street and they stop, they just fall over like nice. a bicycle. <laughs> just, I just kind of tent- I, I sort of did that. But uh, yeah, I, I, I should do that be- before I forget again. <laughs> Uh, if anyone is if anyone is interested in this, because I had sort of pitched you, uh, and it'll be great. I'll do my top five Marlows, you know, and then we we can you know we can start this discussion. Uh, and people love Marlow, but what I had done uh, anyway, I completely forgot at the end of it because I was rambling on too long. But I had written, and what I did was uh, when I when we first talked about doing it, I um, put a top five together, and then having rewatched the movies. And then some ones that I maybe hadn't seen for 20 years, I read it. And some ones that I hadn't seen, like the Powers Booth. So I, so I read it in my top five. So my top five were, going into the episode, number five, Robert Montgomery. Number four, Dick Powell. Number three, Elliot Gould. Number two, Robert Mitchum. And number one, Humphrey Bogart was nice. my Bogey. was my Marla. I mean, I think that's a fairly solid top five of tough Hard drinking, two fisted Marlowe's. Uh, but I went back uh, and I rewatched all the movies, and then you know prior to our discussion, uh, and I a few people fell out of the top five, and I know people are going to be absolutely distraught to hear this. <laughs> I'm joking, obviously nobody cares. But anyway, so just to quickly, uh, what what I when I 
found there are number... marla fans out there i mean a friend of mine nick barry he texted me after he listened to the episode it's like you haven't read farewell my lovely like you're such a slacker i was like whoa okay i guess i didn't realize that people were so passionately attached <laughs> to this novel so there are fans out there uh oh yeah oh yeah i mean people really really love Marlowe and chandler and again as we discussed the first time around um the reason for that is because he's written from the first person you know so like I, I mean i pick up these books every couple of years i haven't read one for a few years but i've got all seven of the novels and the short stories and raymond chandler speaking his letters and all that and i i will pick them up again and i will probably at some stage next year because this talking about it has rekindled my interest i'll start at the big sleep and i'll go all the way through to playback 1958 you know um but having watched the movies and done all that i went back to the list and so so my my revised list was number five elliot gould oh you know i know it's a bit hard on he the slipped. long goodbye the last time but i thought no, no, he wasn't. Oh, yeah, he had slipped. Yeah, he had slipped. Sorry, he was number three. But uh, he's still in there. Um, but a few people kind of impressed me. So number four, James Caan. I had to say, I remember wow. I talked about it like the... Sonny the, Corleone uh, himself. Absolutely. Uh, and the Bob Rafelson version of Poodle Spring. I mean, it, it's a TV movie, and the movie probably doesn't come up to the standard of the longer Byron. But James Caan, as that sort of, as we discussed with the Mitchum thing, the older Marlowe, you know, like the, the Sinatra when the voice is starting to go is amazing. Number three, it wasn't on the list, Powers Booth, who is just such a muscular actor. He is brilliant. And again, it's more who's better at personifying the character than which are the better films. And I've Powers never seen Booth. a Powers Booth performance that I didn't love. Like Even like little teeny tiny bits, like he pops up as one of the powers that be in like the Avengers of all things, as like this kind of secret council running the world. And even then, he's still incredible. He's just got that that classic way of speaking. I love, I first discovered him as a kid and read Don, but yeah, I've been a Powers Booth fan my entire life. Yeah. He's a total hard ass in, and again, the, the, because it's a, it's a sort of an ITV US co-production and it's a little bit creaky, the TV, you know, you can, you can get the block there on YouTube now and you can watch them, but he's amazing. And he's like, you could, you can see him being, you know, it, that character in a sort of more slightly more glossy big budget production would be amazing. Uh, my number two uh, were the same, but uh, they had actually slipped. Number two, they they had swapped. Number two, I'd got Humphrey Bogart, and number one was Robert Mitchum, who is the best Philip Marlowe ever. Like watching Farewell, My Lovely again, probably being a little bit older myself, I just thought, wow, he just really absolutely nails it, and I love that version of Marlowe. So that was just catching up in. Um, in my top five, you know, and uh, people can make of that what they will. Absolutely. <laughs> send any hate mail your way that they feel inclined to send. Well, Absolutely. let's switch gears into some of these flicks where Raymond Chandler's more of a hired gun. And as you mentioned before, mm. between his books that are started to take off like a rocket and some of these movies that are becoming popular, he was a writer in demand at a time where writers were kind of Second-class citizens in the world of Hollywood, that probably still remains the case to this day unless you're working in the world of TV. But just set the stage for where Raymond Chandler was in his career when, you know, Hollywood came knocking at his door to adapt James M. Cain to his book Double Indemnity. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. 
killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it, and I'm going to help you. Yes, from the moment they met, it was murder. Always behind them with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain was Keyes. The murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. Could they get away from him and his relentless pursuit? And could they get away with murder? You don't know Keyes. Once he gets his teeth into something, he never lets go. He'll investigate you. He'll have you shattered. He'll watch every minute from now on. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid. But not of Keyes. I'm afraid of us. I'd like to move in on her right now, tonight. If it wasn't for Norton and his striped pants ideas about company policy, I'd have the cops after her so quick it'd make her head spin. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it and uh, somebody else. Only you haven't got a single thing to go on, Keyes. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometimes, somewhere, they've got to meet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a couple of uh, interesting things I found about Chandler that were just uh, uh, that were just sort of appropriate for, for now. Like, I'm not going to go back. Don't worry. Uh, you don't need to skip forward an hour. I'm not going to go back and do his whole sort of life story. But he was in the First World War in the trenches in 1918, and he he survived two bouts of Spanish flu, the influenza of 1918, which is sort of pretty relevant now. Obviously. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I got, and, I got and, tested and, for coronavirus the other day, but I can't, my test came back negative. I don't know if I've had it any time over the last couple of months, but right yeah. now I've got a clean bill of health. Right, yeah, because the, the last there was a, there was a, a one in the fifties, and in sixty eight there was a, in the UK there was a sort of influenza, a, a, an Asian flu outbreak. But nineteen eighteen is the last big global pandemic, and pretty much like now, a, a lot of it was spread due to soldiers coming back from the First World War in 1918. So you had all these people in this, you know, obviously mud and muck and trenches and everything. Uh, and just as now, the two worst affected cities were London and New York because they were the two biggest hubs in the world. And people like Chandler, who would, uh, would go back to America and then, you know, they dissipate throughout the states spreading this thing you know that's that's kind of nothing has really has really changed there but um yeah so anyway he came back and as we've discussed he he around the time that hollywood came calling he he, you know, he he'd had various careers he'd worked as a copywriter he'd worked in the oil industry he'd strung tennis rackets he'd done everything he'd got he got sacked from his job at davney oil company um towards the beginning of the 30s and he, he sort of Himself and his wife, Sissy, sort of had this little self-contained unit and they uh, basically lived in genteel poverty for about 10 years where he's when he sort of trained himself to be a writer and he wrote these stories for Black Mask and he uh, eventually worked his way up to releasing 
his first novel in 1939, The Big Sleep. And it, what's funny is that he, like he had quite a sort of productive, you know, it was like 1939, The Big Sleep, 1940 or 41, Farewell, My Lovely, 1942, The High Window. You know, he was kind of averaging like a band with their early albums. He was knocking one out of here. Where that all gets snarled up is when Hollywood comes calling because it's distracting then he us. Has, but I love that yeah, when, you see, when you see a writer where it's almost like water building up behind a dam, and when they finally get a chance to share their stories, it all just comes pouring out of them. It reminds me a little bit with like George R. R. Martin, who struggled as a TV writer for years, but when he finally had his chance to start writing A Song of Ice and Fire, the first three books, like boom, 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 came out like back to back, and then he became successful. And it's like, oh, well, now I'm going to take five years, now I'm going to take six years, now I'm going to take ten years. Like the books start spreading, <laughs> spreading out. But it's always exciting when you see a writer or a filmmaker when they've their, their moment arrives and they're ready and they just explode forth with this intense body of work. Yeah, I mean, he he was they were able to take themselves away into this little self-contained you. I mentioned the last time that they would move all the time, like they would they never stayed anywhere more than like six months. You know, they would they would constant. They never owned. They rented all the time, and he would he would uh, live in apartments or these old kind of stucco white courtyard places all around L.A. He loved these kind of places. Like he, he his sort of um, knowledge of L.A. was pretty encyclopedic because of all the uh, places that he'd lived in. They used to go to this place called uh, Big Bear Lake, I believe it's oh, called. Oh, yeah, no, it's where a lot of fighters a... train to this day for uh, for the UFC. It's a, it's a couple oh. hours away from L.A. It's got a heightened elevation, but it's got like all kinds of outdoor activity and skiing and so on and so forth. Yeah, Big Bear is still very popular to this day. Yeah, like his wife, Sissy, was 18 years older than him, and they, they, they don't really know if Chandler ever knew her real age. He, he knew he was older than him. She was older than him, but... She uh, apparently, like when she died, she even managed them to get the kind of her altered age put on the death certificate. Like, so even in death, she managed to keep that secret. So she, she, she had a, a, like kind of towards the, the end of her life, she had a lot of ailments. Uh, she had a lot of lung issues, and they thought that the air up in the mountains and places like Bear Lake, they used to go to uh, visit. Earl Stanley Gardner, who is in Arizona or somewhere, who was a writer that Chandler learnt his craft from he said he learned writing from studying earl stanley gardner um short story that's how he got into the um the black author who created perry mason yes i think so yeah Yeah. or yeah i think could well have been um don't quote me on that um but but he he um so yeah a big bear lake like everywhere he went would become i I just confirmed on wikipedia earl stanley gardner created perry mason in 1933 Okay, right. So yeah, just like Marlowe, um, by Chandler Clayton Marlowe, he and Perry Mason is back on Sky series now at the moment, which is sort of going to probably revive another interest in this, uh, um, which is not surprising to me. I mean, these uh, just to say these books from the thirties and forties are absolutely incredible. Uh, you know, Charles Jackson, James M. Kane, David Goodis, uh, Jim Thompson, all these people. I mean, the reason these books endure is because they're. There's just something about them. They're, and they're just nice so and short. incredible. I read my first Jim Thompson earlier this year. I read The Killer Inside Me. And not only what is it a, an astonishing read, but it's like 120 pages. You can just, you can just rip right through them. So, yeah, yeah th- I think they will last forever. Yeah. Uh, and the same with Double Indemnity. It's quite it's quite a short book. You know, I, I, I read it like since I was talking to you. I just I, just, I ordered it online and read yeah, it. I listened and, to uh, the book on tape. 
but I did. I kind of cheated. I was using it because I was while walking around New York recently. I've been taking a mm. lot of long walks just because there's nothing else to do in New York during coronavirus. We have very few options, so I listened to the audiobook of Double Indemnity, and I was caught off guard by just how different the uh, the ending in particular was from the uh, from the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's uh, not too much to do here, although I did have a pint. I want to say one of the most exciting things since I talked to you last was I had a pint of Guinness in a bar. Nice. That was that was pretty uh, pretty amazing, um, but yeah, as things just start to very very slowly uh, open back up, but he would go to these places like Big Bear Lake becomes then the Lady in the Lake. You know, he uses the location in the the novel that he was to to write a bit later, uh, and he was living in uh, because there's this amazing book I mentioned it last time by Judith Freeman called The Long Embrace, and it's pretty much about the relationship Chandler had with his wife. But what she does is she goes to every address that he has recorded as living in and takes a photograph or more often not a photograph of a, a vacant lot because it's LA and everything gets destroyed, you know? Um, but, uh, they were living in a place called cathedral city, um, which I've never heard of, but it sounds, you know, it's, it's a place in LA outside, uh, the outskirts of LA. Sounds classy. <laughs> yeah. It sounds classy. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, one day he gets a call from, a fellow called Joseph Sistrom, who was a producer and was to become a very important person. So two, the two people who were in Hollywood, probably apart from obviously Hitchcock and Wilder, were Joseph Sistrom uh, and John Houseman. These were the two producers who produced a lot of these movies. And Joseph Sistrom was the producer working with Billy Wilder. And he called Raymond Chandler and said, would he be interested in writing double indemnity would be interested in coming to Hollywood and working in the movies. And Chandler was, you know, kind of, he kind of, he'd kind of taken himself away into this little enclave where he was being very productive. He'd also sort of stopped drinking or pretty much wasn't like those 10 years were pretty, pretty austere for him. You know, um, Sissy and himself would like, they would, you know, they would, they would listen to classic, the same classical music show every evening. They'd turn on the music, then they might have a, a sherry or cocktails, you know. And he was kind of a little bit loath to get, get into that whole Hollywood world, but obviously intrigued about it and, and flattered that Hollywood came calling. Um, they, he was not the first choice. Uh, so Billy Wilder worked with this guy called Charles Brackett, who was his screenwriter and producer, and they produced he would write the script and produce and Billy Wilder would direct and that yeah and they had a very fruitful a, partnership for many years yeah and they and they did the three films before this um but apparently uh just bracket the reason well for first off the reason that he didn't write the screenplay for Double Indemnity was because he was a sort of a Princeton sort of um east coast silver-haired very urbane dapper chap a chap uh, he thought the novel uh Double Indemnity was to use his word, disgusting. He really thought it was appalling and he just wouldn't uh, even be considered for the part. Which a, he just, a lot of people felt like, I mean, one of my favorite bits of research I stumbled across was um, how Raymond Chandler, when he was describing James M. Cain in the novel and he said it was a, a work, the work was gutter trash and he described Cain as a Marcel Proust in greasy overalls, a dirty little boy with a piece of chalk and a board fence and nobody looking. Everything he touches smells like a billy goat. So <laughs> it's funny, people think now of all these down and dirty, hard-boiled novels as essential classics, but people forget that in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, 
they were frowned upon. I mean, even Hitchcock himself was frowned upon for doing all these suspense thrillers and that sort of thing. So, yeah, the, the genre was con- considered by a lot of people as a very lowbrow. Yeah, extreme. Like, even, as we mentioned before, Chandler himself, the sort of high priest of hard-boiled fiction. Like, uh, he, he had a, a guy who used to write to him, uh, Joel, someone I can't remember his name at the moment. Basically, he had, he had, he had lots of fans, and he... The, Chandler only really corresponded through letter, you know, and he, he's a great letter writer and his, his letters are collected in, um, there's a collection called Raymond Chandler Speaking, which is all his letters. And that's why there's only one recording in existence of his voice. But uh, there was a guy who uh, was a great advocate for him. And, he, you know, he was like going, Chandler is this amazing, right? Like he's a, he's a poetic literary writer he's not just a writer so he wrote to the editors of all the newspapers he wrote to the editor of new york times saying look you know Raymond chandler you need to really you need to read his novels and you know, acknowledge that this is one of the great american writers uh and the editor of the new york times wrote back a snooty letter saying yes well you know i don't have time to be doing that sort of thing i've passed your letter on to the man who, re- who reviews detective stories for the newspaper you know because again this sort of stuff was considered gutter trash but and again kane i think chandler didn't like to be put in the same bracket because chandler you know agonized about writing this really flowing poetic prose whereas kane was more like the hard boy like punch in the face wasn't flowery. It wasn't, you know, like um, lots of similes and things. Yeah, it's you know, very his direct. style, was, yeah. And and he was a he was a journalist turned uh, novelist. Um, so that's probably maybe, maybe where that sort of reportage style came. Um, so so they they anyway said, look, you know, come in come in to meet us. Wilder wanted Kane to adopt uh, to to adapt the uh, screenplay of Double Indemnity. But he was contracted to another studio, and you know, in those days, that meant he was out. And Joseph Sistrom, who was the producer, he was always reading, and he always had a paperback with him. And he he would he was a fan of Chandler, like he'd read the first two uh, Chandler novels and loved them. And he said, "What about this guy Raymond Chandler?" And, and he gave he gave the Big Sleep or that whatever maybe the High Window had just been released, and he gave it to Billy Wilder, and Wilder loved it. He went, "God, this is amazing! Like, let's get this guy in." So they arranged a meeting, and um, it's kind of funny reading it. Like the, the, you know, when Chandler when Chandler arrived, um, it was to the sort of crushing disappointment. Like Billy Wilder expected Philip Marlowe to walk into the yeah, room. Yeah. They expected this tough guy to walk in, you know, to throw a cigarette on the ground, grind it out with his, boot, you know, pour himself a scotch. Yeah, he wanted and, to see Bogey walk in the door. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, instead, we get you know, um, we get Chandler, who's sort of looked like an accountant, we, you know, which because he was an accountant 10 years earlier and he, you know, he was wore his bow ties and his nice suits and his shoes were polished and uh, he looked for, you know, very well turned out. And, um, Chandler told them, this is a kind of famous story that Chandler told them that, you know, they said, look, you know, can you write this novel, uh, double indemnity? They gave, they gave him the book and could he write the screenplay? And he said, yeah, well, Oh, they mentioned a figure of $750 and Chandler said, well, okay, you know, I'm going to need at least thousand dollars, and uh, it's going to take me a week to do it. You know, a job like that, like a big job. And they said, you know, no dummy head. Like, so it's seven hundred fifty dollars a week for ten weeks. That nice. is the fee that we're paying you. You know, and you don't have to do it in a week. You do it in ten weeks, and I'm going to teach you how to. You know, so suddenly he did the sums in his head and went, okay, maybe Hollywood is a place that I could sort of enjoy. Well, so there was no more experienced writer in Hollywood than Billy Wilder. I mean, Billy Wilder obviously started in Germany 
fled Germany as the Nazi party started to seize power, but he reinvented himself very successfully. And he, along with Preston Sturgis and John Huston, was part of this new wave of writers turned directors. And you could argue that Billy Wilder, perhaps as a writer turned director, was more successful than any of them because he was able to sustain that career for a long time. So, I mean, he worked on things like Ninochka, which is one of the funniest screenplays mm. in Hollywood history. So Raymond Chandler couldn't have asked for a better director to work with for his first time at bat because Billy Wilder respected the, the craft of writing and knew the, the business of writing in Hollywood inside and out. Yeah, I mean the the Billy Wilder. Yeah, what a perfect person to learn, you know, your tutelage under that how to become a screenwriter. I, I think Billy Wilder like was a writer for. He, he got into directing and producing because like if if he wanted to make the types of movies in America that he wanted to make himself and Charles Brackett thought, look, we just have to produce and direct ourselves, and he would get, and you know, he 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 normally wrote with Charles Brackett, he wrote with Chandler on this occasion, you know, they didn't, they, they, they had a very fruitful collaboration. Uh, it wasn't always uh, harmonious, but, I mean, but Wilder... All I've read on IMDb about their relationship, I mean, it's hysterical, but they were a study in contrast. <laughs> yeah, but as far as Wilder was concerned, that's what made the script good, because you needed tension. If you yeah. didn't have tension, you, you know, if, if, if they were all... Huggy kissy. It was wasn't you know there wasn't the dramatic. I always hear that. that like I can't work with people that I'm that I'm arguing with all the time. But there are a lot of filmmakers like Paul Verhoeven or Billy Wilder where they love to clash and duke it out, and they they think that the best work emerges from that tension. I don't know how people are able to I guess emotionally not get invested in the fight to the point where it destroys the work. But it seems mm -hmm. like some filmmakers like Billy Wilder they really thrive in that environment. And some of these stories I guess depends upon whose side do you want to take but they both had a bone to pick with the other person for a variety of reasons but i love my favorite bit was when raymond chandler said i can't work with a man who wears a hat in the office i feel he's about to leave momentarily i mean you're talking about old world like grievances to pick with somebody <laughs> hello that that's like one of the, the chief offenses yeah absolutely the other, the other one he had the court billy Billy Wilder had this maraca cane that he used to carry. Is it maraca? Malacca? I don't know. Yeah, just sort of like short bamboo cane that he carried around, like an affectation, like a you know, like a Joseph Stroheim thing, and he'd smack it down on the table every now and then. This drove Chandler insane. Like he'd get really irritated. Uh, also, um, he would he would call up. He was dating loads of women, but Billy Wilder was like was was running rampant through Hollywood. So he's always on the phone to dates and all that and. Uh, so one, one day when they were working... Well, apparently, just a quick interruption, because yeah. apparently Billy Wilder, one of the ways he made a living while fleeing Germany, he got on some... This might be Hollywood legend, who knows? But he got on some giant cruise ship crossing the Atlantic very slowly, and he made his money working as a gigolo, which, I mean, he wasn't like American gigolo, like the Paul Schrader film, but it basically meant dancing with ladies at night and so on and so forth. So Billy Wilder was a small kind of diminutive man, but was quite the the hustler and the player when it came to affairs of the heart. And so I think, yeah, I think he did very well on that front in the thirties and forties. Yeah. He certainly, I mean, he certainly said he did. Yeah. He's, he's like, exactly. Uh, so, on, on record as saying that he did. <laughs> and, uh, this used to kind of infuriate Ray, who was, you know, kind of like oh, trying to get them down to work. But one day in, in the one Monday, Chandler just didn't turn up to work, you know, while it was expected. And then, you know, he didn't arrive. And then the next, day he didn't turn up but but a letter arrived this was kind of Chandler's way of communication 
was through letters. So rather than have it out with him, he, he wrote a letter to Systrom saying, I can't work with this man anymore. And he, he, he listed a sort of bullet point of this terrible behavior that Wilder had. He, you know, he was on the phone. Like, Chandler actually timed him at one time, 12 minutes on the telephone talking to this girl, you know, like just to the sort of minutiae of, like, you know, Wilder was like, this guy's even fucking recording how long I'm on the telephone. You know, a, a list of the Maraca cane, you know, I'm going to take that thing and, you know, snap it or shove it up his heart. Like, you know, just a list of, of grievances, <laughs> you know, they, 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 these kind of petty grievances. And, you know, they, they had so they threatened to walk off the picture. They had a sort of crisis meeting, Sistrum and Billy Wilder and Chandler, and they thrashed it all out. Uh, and yeah, obviously they, they shook hands and they went on to, you know, work together. Um, but it was, uh, it was, um, it was very fruitful. You know, I mean, no one knows whose contribution is whose, you know, which is Wilder's, which is Chandler's. But initially Chandler dropped in some pages, you know, 12 pages or something, or maybe it was the first draft. I don't know, but whatever his first contribution, Billy Wilder brought it home, came back in, read it handed it to him and said, this is shit, Mr. Chandler, you know, like this is garbage. And he, like Chandler done that thing that sort of, I don't know, people, if you, because if, you're trying to compensate for his lack of knowledge, the script he gave Billy Wilder had all, you know, fade in, camera tracks, dolly, you know, all those sort of stuff. And he's like, you know, we didn't hire you, like, to yeah. do any of this. I got, I got that covered. Um, but yeah. yeah, I've got it covered. I'm the director. You know, we hired you because this guy writes these like tough guy, hard boiled Marley. You know, you know, we hired you for the, the dialogue. So forget about all that nonsense. Leave that to me. I'll be able to do that. What we want you to do is, you know, take some of that sparkling stuff that you're supposed to, you know, that I've read and put it on the pages of these scripts. Uh, and that's what he did. And that was a kind of a turning point. Like one of the things that I read um, was that. Another argument that they have was that Wilder wanted to transpose a lot of the dialogue, you know, take take it as written. That's what they did with the Marlowe novels, and that's what people couldn't almost couldn't help themselves doing because the, the dialogue was so beautiful. And Chandler is a brilliant, brilliant writer of dialogue because he'd lived in so many places, and he would he would study this. He would go to, um, and I read that the, the famous scene where they have the the food market that where where they meet and. Uh, Stanwick's wearing the sunglasses. Like he would go to markets like that and just listen to how people were talking. And so um, he was arguing that to Billy Wilder, look, this dialogue as written, it's it's too flat. It's it's, it's like it's saying, you know, it works fine on the page as an interior inner monologue, but it's it's just too flat. It won't work on on film. And Billy Wilder said, you know, well, you know, I think it will, and I'm sort of the expert. And they would argue about this for, and eventually said, look, let's just they they got some actors in to read the script as was sort of transcribed uh, and Billy Wilder was amazed to, re to realize that Chandler was right the dialogue sounded like garbage it didn't it didn't work you know what worked on the page didn't work and he can see that they had to change the whole thing so then Chandler started rewriting all the dialogue uh, a lot of it you're a smart insurance man aren't you Mr. Neff well I've been at it 11 years doing pretty well mm, it's a living you handle just automobile insurance or all kinds? All kinds. Fire, earthquake, theft, public liability, group insurance, industrial stuff, and so on right down the line. Accident insurance? Accident insurance? Sure, Mr. Dedrickson. Wish you'd tell me what's engraved on that anklet. Just my name. As for instance? Tell us. Tell us, huh? I think I like that. But you're not sure. 
Well, have to drive it around the block a couple of times. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. Eight thirty tomorrow evening, then. That's what I suggested. Will you be here too? I guess so. I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. It wouldn't be that hard to make a case for this as the most colorful and memorable screenplay of the 1940s. I mean, I, I don't know if it'd be my personal favorite, but it's always going to be in the conversation because the dialogue is remarkable, and it's unlike any other movie that I've ever seen. I mean, while Howard Hawks might be famous for great dialogue in movies like His Girl Friday, I feel like with Double Indemnity, it's almost like it's the dialogue is the feature attraction. Obviously, you've got two extraordinary leads, and you have a movie that just reeks the, the atmosphere and aroma and style of film noir. And this is, for me, one of the first like really essential, bleak, fatalistic, kind of desperate film noir movies, whereas you might say Maltese Falcon, but Maltese Falcon doesn't feel as fatalistic as Double Indemnity, whereas this movie just... It's just a film of sweaty desperation <laughs> where a guy who's shot is, uh, you know, recording this memorandum about all these horrible mistakes he made. But the dialogue is just as, is as sparkling and creative and imaginative and charming and sexual as any other dialogue from, uh, from that decade. And we could do a two-hour podcast just reading the lines to each other <laughs> because it's like it's just one scene after another. Like, oh, my God, that's like the best fucking dialogue I've ever heard. And it just it just it just it doesn't stop. It just never lets up the entire movie. Yeah, it's a great, like Dublin's Empty is one of the greatest films ever made. Forget crime movies of film noir, like def, definitely one of the greatest screenplays ever written. Um, I watched it the other night again, just didn't, you know, no notes, just watched it, watched it. And it rips you, grabs you from the first scene and doesn't let go. And it, yeah. The Maltese Falcon is something different, you know, like it's it's a great movie and everything, but this is so bleak. And this and, and those few years from sort of late thirties to mid forties, when the war was going on and people were coming back from the war and it was just grim and depressing. And this whole sort of aura, uh, this whole noir aura that had been conjured up, like it's it's obviously Dublin Demity is an essential film noir. If you're picking a canon of like five of the best, it's... Yeah, and the term film noir didn't even exist when this movie got made. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of interviews with Billy Wilder from the 60s and 70s talking about how he just made the movies that he wanted to see and there was the film historians later on, mostly like basically a lot of French film fans who got, suddenly got this tidal wave of American movies that they'd been deprived of during the war. Suddenly they all got distributed in France in the late 40s. And it's, ah, film noir, like, you know, dark film. And this was one of the essential ones, but one of the building blocks. But Billy Wilder wasn't like, oh, I'm going to make like the quintessential film noir. He just told a fascinating story. But when you talk about film fatales, I mean, it's hard to think of a better film fatale than Barbara Stanwyck. And it's, it's, this is one of the, for me, I think it's not only, this is Billy Wilder's first essential film as a director 
but it's one of the essential films for that whole mood. Because I've always felt like film noir is not a style. It's more a mood. And the mood is one where fate at any moment might stick out its foot to trip you up, which I think is a line from Detour, which is another essential film noir. But just the idea of Fred McMurray... He's already shot sweating as he's recording this confession and describing all the mistakes that he made. You're like, yeah, I killed him for money and a woman, and I didn't get the money and I didn't get the woman. Pretty, isn't it? Yeah. It just sets the tone from the word go. Yeah, I mean, that, that is amazing. It's a brilliant start. Uh, the idea of the dictaphone, again, it's like, like when you read the novel, you towards the end of the novel, you go, and that's my confession. You know, he's kind of, you're reading it first person, and then you realize, oh, he's in a prison cell writing this. But Kane himself said the idea of the dictaphone was absolute genius because like in a lot of the uh, the Marlowe books, the thing that makes these films so so deep and so affecting is the voiceover where you hear what the characters are thinking. So what better way than he cranks, you know, he staggers into the office exactly at the beginning and the, the, the bell, the guy in the elevator is like, you know, he's getting no crack out of him. He's obviously, you know... Um, Fred McMurray's character is obviously pretty chip, chirpy in the office normally. And he's going, oh, you're working late, aren't you? Yeah, no. <laughs> he's bleeding to death, practically, as he drags himself up the stairs and then starts uh, recording. This is his testament. And like I said, what, what made it um, different from the Maltese Falcon and those books, it's not a whodunit. So, like, these were mysteries. Like, it's a, the crime film had to be a mystery film. You know, someone was killed and then at the end. This is like a, a why'd he do it? You know, it's like he, 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 like you say, at the beginning he comes in, he, I killed a woman, I killed her for money. And I, I killed him and I, I killed him for money, I killed him for a woman. I didn't get the woman, I didn't get the money. Like it's, it's, he's sort of, so we know who the killer is in the first five minutes of the movie. That's not a spoiler. So it's like, okay, we're even more fascinated now. And we want to know the story, this grubby story. I, I, I fed out when I researched uh, James, like the book had been around, the book was published in 36. Gotcha. It was around for years and people thought, well, well, actually, no, it was published in serial form in magazine in 36, the actual novel in 43. But since, gotcha. since 36, people have been hawking this story around uh, Hollywood and people just thought it couldn't be made. It was impossible to make this story with the restrictions of the Breen office and the code and everything that, you know, you couldn't make this movie. Um, but Kane was a journalist and it's based on in a 1926 murder it's called the 1927 the Snyder Gray case, uh, in which Ruth Snyder of Queens Village, New York, and her lover they murdered her husband. Uh, they strangled him with a window sash. You know the cord nice. that goes. <laughs> this caused a huge sensation, and uh, the New York Daily Times printed a picture of Ruth Snyder at the moment of her electrocution, just in case anyone <laughs> thinks that tabloid newspapers and yeah, people think Twitter's sort of bad. Yeah, I mean, it, that, that, I guess those impulses have always been around. They've always been around. And if people think lurid tabloid headlines and sensationalism is something new, no. In 1927, they were just as grubby and as sort of lurid as they as they may be now. So, yeah, Kane turned this into a story. And I, mean, I think even the window sash is maybe where he got the idea of strangling uh, the husband uh, in the car. But, uh, yeah, it's a completely fatalistic, dark and it's just a story of this guy who's doomed. Well, let's start digging into the meat of this movie. First and foremost, what does double indemnity even mean in the world of life insurance? Because it's a, it's such a, I guess, cold title, but now it's got all this kind of romantic flair around it, but it's actually a pretty technical term. 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm, I still can't. I'm not I get my head around it. Like a double indemnity is a, a, a provision in a life insurance. If the, there is an accidental death, a dismemberment, death or dismemberment policy, the clause allows for additional payout in the acts of in the act of accidental death. So double indemnity is means if the person who is insured for accident uh, or um, dismemberment policy dies then uh, you get twice the payout. That, so in the film, obviously, they get a, a, the double indemnity clauses for 50 grand. And then, but if, there's an, if the husband dies accidentally, then they get a pay payout of 100 grand, yeah. 100 grand, 50 grand each. Yeah. And so Fred McMurray says, we're going for double indemnity, baby. You know, and he, <laughs> he says, it's baby all the time. So uh, Fred McMurray, like when I was a kid, I always thought of him as like, was it my three sons? And he's like this wholesome wholesome fella but in the world of billy wilder he's always got ethical shortcomings whether you're talking about the apartment or double indemnity he some he just saw that he had additional qualities and same goes for barbara stanwick mm. she had done all these extraordinary movies like the lady eve and just you know marvelous actress incredible but who knew that she could be so sexy and so alluring and just have like death and sex and temptation just oozing out of every line that she's just purring away where she was born to play this part but nothing in her prior work would suggest it and just incredible just like uh, that they were able to identify these qualities in these two actors and unleash them on this movie yeah absolutely perfectly guy like barbara stanwick is unbelievable in this film and you know was very wary apparently of playing the part you know it's such a sort of poisonous role like in the book even more so you know they have to soften yeah almost in the book, she's both of the characters a serial killer <laughs> she's a serial killer yeah she's a psychotic we should say in, in the book she's a, a she's not only a murderess but infanticide is kind of high up on her list of sort of crimes so she's this, and that's you know they they saw they they make it more believable really or, or whatever they soften it i'm sure there's lots of production issues but yeah she was very nervous about playing it you know thinking like god i'm going to remember this is this horrible queen bitch type character um and Billy Wilder was like, well, you're an actress, aren't you? You know, like, so act, you know, and, and sort of challenged her to play the role. I mean, she was a huge star at the time, like one of the highest paid actresses in Hollywood. Again, was thinking, you know, is this going to really enhance my career or reputation? Um, but she did it and she's absolutely incredible in it, like cold as ice. And then Fred McMurray uh, is, I think they took a while to find the character yeah, he's sort of a lovable lug, you, marry, you imagine him being. But um, in this, you, they reckon as well that, you know, you, like even though he's, uh, he turns out to be a killer as well, that you had to sort of, if, if you're going to follow him around, you had to sort of at least like him a little bit. And I read this, uh, that they, um, I noticed it the other night, someone had pointed it out. They do these subtle little things. So when he first arrives into her house, she goes upstairs to, you know, get into something more comfortable, put some clothes on. Yeah, look, she answers uh, the yeah. door. I mean, she, I guess, greets him in a towel at the top of the stairs. Uh, and it's like, holy shit. Like, for Hollywood in the 40s, that's pretty pretty saucy. And I love how he has that line later on. He says, um, I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. <laughs> it's a, yeah. such a great that's line. A great, it's a great thing about visualizing. You, you read the book, and you're like, okay, he's just met this woman, and you know he's sort of plotting, 
murder with her. This does you know it doesn't make sense. It's not credible. And then you see it visualized, and Barbara Stanwyck comes out with the bathrobe around her, and you go, okay, well, who do I have to kill, and where do I have to dump Absolutely. the body? Yeah, like, it's such a great you, seduction you scene. I guess like, if since we are following a story about two murderers, how do you make the audience fall in love with them initially? Well, you fall in love with them through the, this incredibly intense flirtation going back yeah. and forth and the witty dialogue going back and forth and so you're the audience is rooting for them to get it on from the word go and so once you're invested in them getting into the sack together then you're willing to kind of follow them on the rest of this diabolical journey of theirs yeah they're sort of they're doomed hayride and uh, yeah i was just going to mention there when 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 he does see her and she goes in there's a fish tank and uh, Fred McMurray goes over to it and he takes a bit of fish food and, and, and sprinkles it over. And it's one of those little things. He's a nice guy, really. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's going to knock off the husband. And, um, yeah. So that in the, in the book and in, and in the film, in the film, he's a bit more, a bit of a more reluctant um, to get into this plot. But if anyone doesn't know the story of the film, just a very, very like it's it's pretty, really simple. He, Fred McMurray is an insurance salesman who goes door to door and he sells auto insurance, act, you know, you name it. And he goes to this, he sees this, he's he's got a renewal policy due on this guy, and he goes up and he sees his beautiful, glamorous wife. The, the husband uh, isn't there, and then um, she brings up the subject either at their first or second meeting. She says, "Oh, you know, we're going to get the auto insurance. By the way, do you do also do accident insurance?" And he says, "Yeah, of course I do. I do accident insurance. Do we kind of insurance?" She says, "Well, yeah. Well, you know, could 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 you get accident insurance for my husband?" And she says, "Well, of course." And then she says, "Well, you know, would it be possible to get accident insurance without him knowing? Because you know, I would. Yeah. He would. I don't want to trouble him. I don't want to burden him with this. He worries so much, you know." And Fred Murray goes, oh, okay, right. And he storms out kind of thing, you know, saying like, this woman is absolutely crazy. But then he he succumbs to her charms. Uh, but he realizes from the off that, um, that, yeah, she's up to no good. So he either decides to go with it or to obviously, I guess, report her or never see her again. But because he's so smitten, he becomes her ally. And then they plan the perfect murder. Uh, but unfortunately, it yeah. doesn't go. Little did to they plan. realize, though, that they also have the perfect bloodhound played by Edward G. Robinson as Barton Keyes, who's going to figure it all out. And Edward G. Robinson, I mean, I love him in movies like Little Caesar, and he's, he was one of, the, one of the great gangster actors in the 30s and 40s and did cool things like Key Largo. But I love how he recognizes that with this movie, as he's at a certain age where he had to kind of pivot in his career as well and start playing different types of parts. And I love the fact that he's able to like take charge of so much of the movie in spite of the fact that he's not the, the leading man, but he's like the, the perfect bloodhound to slowly but surely sniff out all the little, little things that Fred McMurray is up to. That character is less interesting in the book. And that's one of the, like the chief strengths of the film is how it fleshes out that character and makes him just as interesting as the two who are falling in love with each other. Yeah. It's, it's a brilliant bit of writing. And I'll, I'll also, yeah, he, he isn't as significant in the book. Uh, he's also a bit of a boob in the book. Like he's not, he's not as, he's not as the idea by turning him into such a forensic, ruthless bloodhound, as you say, ratchets up the dramatic tension because at any moment he could figure out what these two. Well, even his educated guesswork, all of his instincts, he'll just be thinking out loud and suggest something as like, oh my god, like he's already got this figured it, figured out, and he doesn't even know it yet. He's it's like, and you can see just the dawning horror and panic in Fred McMurray's face as his mm. boss is kind of almost accidentally outwitting him at, at every turn. Just that long speech about suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex, by seasons of the year, by time of day. I mean, it's incredible just how 
detailed and systematic as his mind is. She can go to court and we can prove it was suicide. Oh, can we? Mr. Norton, first thing that struck me was that suicide angle. Only I dumped it into the waste paper basket just three seconds later. You know, you uh, ought to take a look at these statistics on suicide sometime. You might learn a little something about the insurance business. Mr. Keyes, I was raised in the insurance business. Yeah, in the front office. Come now, you've never read an actuarial table in your life, have you? Why, we've got ten volumes on suicide alone. Suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex, by seasons of the year, by time of day. Suicide, how committed? By poisons, by firearms, by drowning, by leaps. Suicide by poison, subdivided by types of poison, such as corrosive, irritant, systemic, gaseous, narcotic, alkaloid, protein, and so forth. Suicide by leaps, subdivided by leaps from high places, under the wheels of trains, under the wheels of trucks, under the feet of horses, from steamboats. But Mr. Norton, of all the cases on record, there's not one single case of suicide by leap from the rear end of a moving train. And you know how fast that train was going at the point where the body was found? 15 miles an hour. Now, how can anybody jump off a slow-moving train like that with any kind of expectation that he would kill himself? No, no soap, Mr. Norton. We're sunk and we'll have to pay through the nose, and you know it. May I have this? Come on, Walter. Next time, I'll rent a tuxedo. Yeah, it's great to see him in this role because I, you always think of him almost being caricatured in those Warner Brothers cartoons where you know Bugs Bunny's outsmarting him and that sort of thing. It almost becomes kind of a caricature, and it's great to see him play a different kind of role than uh, than than Caesar for once. Yeah, I mean he's essentially playing an accountant, you know, the pen pusher or whatever. But but he he's he's so determined that you know to get to the bottom of everything that. They're both single, these two guys as well, you know, and that's one of the things Billy Wilder said. So it's it's almost a love story between these two guys, these two rambunctious characters, you know. Uh, at, at the start, when what's his name, when Fred McMurray is recording, and he's saying, you know, yeah, I killed her. Yeah, it was me. He's, you know, uh, Walter Neff, thirty-eight years of age, single, no scars, yeah, no, no visible, visible scars. scars. Yeah, yeah. And it looks down to the bullet hole and goes, until recently, anyway. Oh, it's and, brilliant. Um, uh, but. Um, yeah, with uh, Freddie G. Ro uh, Eddie G. Robinson, he he describes it, well, he nearly got married once, but and he goes, why didn't you? And he says, well, I, you know, of course he had to investigate the woman who was about to be his bride, and you know, she'd been married once, she you know dyed her hair, she married to a pool shark, and yeah, yeah, I get the pictures. Like his own sleuthing has sort of he's so obsessed with it that has condemned him to a, a life of sort of uh, loneliness or whatever. But that, that's how that's how ruthless he is. If the story had a happy ending, it would be where one where Walter Neff never meets Phyllis <clears throat> and ends up taking the promotion that's being offered where he actually gets to basically be the right-hand man of his boss. And I love he says, like, uh, I picked you for the job not because I think you're so darn smart, but because I thought you were a shade less dumb than the rest of the outfit. Guess I was wrong. You're not smarter, Walter. You're just a little taller. <laughs> it's so fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. I mean, the, the banter between them. Um, oh, yeah, one thing uh, that I found out as well when I was watching it, the, Raymond Chandler is in Double Indemnity. He's in a, in a cameo, uh, and, and amazingly, I found this. I was uh, there's an old Guardian article from 2009. So one of the first scenes when uh, you know, uh, Eddie G. Robinson says, "Get out of my office" or something, and um, uh, Walter Neff says, "I love you too." You know, when they're shooting back and forth, and he, you know, up on that top tier of all the offices, and you've got the typing pool down below, and Fred McMurray walks out. And sitting outside the office is a guy reading a paperback book, and it's Raymond Chandler. Nice. And and nobody knew 
until about, I mean, some people say, I thought everyone knew that, but in 2009, some guy was watching it and went, slowed it down and went, that's Raymond Chandler. What the fuck? Which is, (laughs) what the fuck? So, you know, the idea that uh, Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler hated each other, of course they didn't hate each other, just, you know, there was a lot of to and fro, but they obviously must have thought, oh, this would be a cute idea, or let's get Ray to sit in on this, you know, which I thought was funny because obviously he was then end up working with Hitchcock, who was famous for doing these cameos, these kind of showy, you can't miss a Hitchcock cameo because of his character and everything. And in Strangers in the Train, he's got like a double bass that he's yeah, carrying yeah, yeah. on to the train, you can't miss it. Whereas there's Ray just subtly outside the office reading it. And unfortunately, when you zoom in, you can't see what the book is, but it'd be interesting to see uh, to see what he was reading. But but yeah, it wasn't until 50 years later in 2009 that, that it came out that someone went, oh, that's Raymond Chandler, um, who's stuck himself into the uh, film Double Indemnity which I also saw was released last week, 76 years ago. It was released on the 3rd of July in 1944, which is pretty amazing for such a... The enduring sort of power of this film is absolutely incredible. As yeah, I, I mean, the other we're night, going to be talking about some so other fresh. movies today that are less enduring, but it's incredible when you see these really good ones, whether you're talking about 20s, 30s, 40s, and you see how well they hold up. It's a weird thing where so many people are so reluctant to watch old movies, but I remember sitting down with a couple of my friends in the summer of 99. We did, we were just wrapping up school for the year, and people were drinking drinking beer and smoking weed and just hanging out, and we just tossed this sucker in. And these were not necessarily people that were diehard film, film historians or diehard film buffs. And they were just laughing and cackling and having a blast watching it, just enjoying it as a story, as a piece of entertainment. And just like little lines like uh, when she offers him, um, I guess she offers him some tea and he says something like, uh, uh, no, but I'll, I'll take a beer if you got a bottle that isn't working. Uh, unless, yeah, he says, yeah, unless you got yeah, a bottle of beer that's not working. Just little lines like that. And now my friends were like, yeah, and they would like, you know, chug their beer and that sort of thing. And But uh, <laughs> if you are a diehard film historian, there's so much more to sink your teeth into and so much more to enjoy as well. I mean, for me, I think the best stuff is later on, once Fred McMurray's character is in so deep that he knows, no matter how it ends, it ain't going to be pretty, but he says, suddenly it came over me that everything would go wrong. It sounds crazy, Keys, but it's true, so help me. I couldn't hear my own footsteps. It was the walk of a dead man. I mean, that is some beautiful writing, and once again, it's the essence of film noir. It's this essence of this dark, depressing mood where no matter what he does the he's getting boxed in and he's getting fewer and fewer options and you know it's going to end with two characters cold as ice just having it out and shooting each other point blank yeah it's so fatalistic the other line that, that, that reminded me of is it just again it's the throwaways when she opens the door and he's kind of leaning there at the door he comes to see her the second time and she says are you going to come in and he goes i'm considering it <laughs> just throws it out there like everything has to be just really sparkling and yeah then it gets darker and darker and and uh eddie g robinson describes it as like the, the freight train to hell kind of thing you know like they're on this train and he's like look we're going to solve this because this is a murder between two people. Like she couldn't have done it by herself. Yeah. So if it's one person, you get away with it. Two people, it's, yeah, just, it's two too, people. too much can go wrong. Too much uh, paranoia, too much mutual suspicion and too many veiled threats. And I love that scene in the grocery store where she basically threatens him with a version of events that will basically place everything on him and they keep saying like oh, right down the line or straight down the line how we're both in this right down the line but the more they talk and the more they interact the, the more you can tell it's not right down the line it's not straight down the line one person is going to have a better outcome than the others and uh, than the other and 
yeah, inevitably bullets have to fly. But we talked about this a bit with our previous episode about how much like movies like Naked Gun pulled from Farewell My Lovely. But once again, Naked Gun pulls from this as well when he says, uh, Walter Neff says, that's a honey of an anklet wearing that you're wearing, Mrs. Dietrichson. Can't even say her name. And what I didn't know until I was doing my research for this, apparently that was a way of women at the time talking about uh, making it the urban legend is a married woman who wears an anklet it's a way of indicating that she's married but she's available to other men and so just little details wow. like that which probably comes straight from billy wilder because i imagine he probably was servicing a, lo- a lot of married women around hollywood yeah he was he was he was an anklet spotter exactly you see a little glint you saw a little glint in the sunlight of an ankle you know and uh, um yeah okay that makes sense yeah and uh of course it's yeah priscilla presley then she's like oh did it slide all the way down there yeah yeah, is that fall down there again which i you know it's just one of those i've googled googled people go what does that mean i don't get the joke why is it funny when i was a a little and i was 11 i was so innocent like oh that's just a silly thing where because it's like this silly world but nothing makes sense it started on a wrist and even though it's impossible it made its way down to her ankle but the older you get the more perverse and provocative the line becomes uh, yeah, no, it's hilarious, and we, we mentioned as well. Yeah, with with Farewell My Lovely, like because these these kind of films become classics, or they almost become cliches because this is where it starts. You know, this is where the dark uh, noir atmosphere starts. But yeah, the other thing that really is, is is striking more so than the sort of even in the couple of years is that sense of yeah in, impending doom. You know, the whole idea that 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 they're on this train, that they're handcuffed to this this thing, you know. And then, as you mentioned in the in the in the supermarket, there's the Walter's uh, gradual realization that he's been picked out like yep. to, to, to carry out this task. He's a sucker. Uh, he's a sucker who's been carried out to pick this task and he's gonna be tossed aside, you know, once he's served his purpose. So he needs to try and save his own ass is what he needs to do here. Then the the added complication that he starts to fall for the stepdaughter, which is always uh, interesting. Who's gone out with the Stacchetti character? You know, total in scumbag. The book. But for whatever reason, yeah. she she likes him. Well, of course, you know, because he's like, you know, he's a bit dangerous and all that. But but in the book, their romance sort of flourishes quite a bit, you know, and like, you know, so he's like, he's totally suddenly not. And and then you get you know, this is not a decisive man, you know. This is some. This is a sort of weak, venal man. I love the word venal. You know, someone who's given to surrendering to his urges. Oh, now he's in love with the daughter. Like, you know, he's he's just killed a guy last week for the woman that he professes his love to. Uh, or maybe it's a couple of weeks, but relatively recently. Uh, and now he's, uh, he's knocking around with the stepdaughter. And there's a great line in the book. One of the chapters begins with, um, I don't know when it was exactly that I decided I had to kill Phyllis, you know, and then we switch in to another survival gear mode. Then when he realized that his sort of whole survival is on the line, because as she says, well, you killed him. I, I, I didn't kill him. You know, might have yeah. been her idea, but he did it. Um, and what's brilliant as well is the staging of the killing. Uh, which is oh, and the camera just holds in her face. face and she's looking off with this really enigmatic, mysterious, almost like she's having a little, 
little like miniature orgasm while yeah. her husband is getting choked out beside her. And yeah, it was, once again, Barbara Sandwick, one of the icons of the Hollywood golden age. And it seems like that where she solidified her reputation. But what's funny is that we mentioned earlier how this genre was so frowned upon and looked down upon by the establishment, et cetera, but it didn't prevent this movie from being nominated for seven Academy Awards, which I think is remarkable because a lot of times Hollywood is notoriously short-sighted about the classics that are staring it square in the face, and it takes years sometimes for people to get for these movies to get recognized. At least some people took notice at the time. But and once again, this is could be Hollywood legend, it could be bullshit. But there's a story where because it lost out to this movie going my way on pretty much every category. Billy Wilder was so annoyed that when Leo McCary, he directed like Duck Soup and a bunch of other great things like The Awful Truth, when he was walking down uh, for to receive uh, his award for Best Director, they claimed that Billy Wilder stuck out his foot into the aisle to trip him. I don't know if that's true or not, but it... it it's one of the stories that it seems plausible and it seems to fit and it feels very much uh, consistent with Billy Wilder's kind of mischievous uh, way of behaving. Yeah, no, I would, I would have believed that, you know, as, as the, as the night went on. Um, yeah, it was, it was nominated for seven Oscars and it didn't get a single win in any category. It didn't win anything. I mean, Billy uh, Wilder won more Oscars than like any other human being who ever lived. So his day would come where he would start racking up. I mean, there's all these pictures of him with like, just like an, an entire shelf where mm. it's like, anyway, he, he just had to sit tight and keep doing what he was doing. And the, uh, the statues were inevitably going to come his way. Yeah, and um, uh, Raymond Chandler was nominated for an Academy Award for his first screenplay. Yeah, it was the first screenplay he'd ever written. Not you bad. know, and he was, it, which is not bad. Uh, he he complained. He gave out. He said, "Oh, it wasn't nom- It wasn't. They did. He didn't go to the ceremony because he was such a crotchety sort of character. Um, but he did go to the screening of the movie. And you know, apparently, when it came out in the movie, James M. Cain grabbed him, embraced him. He said, "You know, it's the only film that had ever been made from his book." That would, you know, I would have never yeah, thought of half he of loved these it. things. He, saw it he loved it. He absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and, but Chandler said, like, oh, something about the Oscars, you know, they, oh, they didn't invite me. They didn't bring, bring me along. And Billy Wilder said, didn't invite him. Of course he didn't come. He was drunk under a table at Lucy's, this place <laughs> they used to go to. <laughs> on the floor drunk but um uh, the but, yeah, Billy Wilder takedowns are incredible like so many great lines like when uh, Harry Cohen uh, when Harry Cohen died and everybody showed up for his funeral and someone remarked like oh my god I can't believe so many people showed up for his uh, his funeral he was so hated in the industry and Billy Wilder said oh we you know first rule of show business give the people what they want and he's had all these great <laughs> witticisms and so yeah absolutely. I, I absolutely love everything about Billy Wilder's story and I, I need to start tackling more of his movies on the podcast yeah, no, it reminds me of the one uh, completely off topic, but I, you know, one of my favorite movies, the, whatever happened to ba- Baby Jane, and the one that uh, Joan Crawford apparently, you know, when Betty Davis died, someone told her, and they said, well, you know, I've been brought up that, you know, when you hear someone's dead, you should only say something good, you know. Betty Davis has died. Good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, they oh, were uh, they were they were not fond of one another. Well, just in the interest of time, we should probably push on to some of these other flicks mm. because this opens the door to new avenues for uh, Raymond Chandler's career. And we've got two movies that I think you and I both kind of agree are more footnotes than essentials. But if you want to get an idea for just how good Double Indemnity is in comparison to more run of the mill films, we do have these two films from forty four and forty five, and now tomorrow. And The Unseen, neither of which I'd seen prior to getting prepared for this episode. 
both movies have a lot of actors that I like. I mean, you've got Loretta Young, and you've got Barry Sullivan, and you've got like uh, Alan Ladd and Joel McRae and Herbert Marshall, like, marvelous actors. I found both these movies to be watchable, but ultimately kind of forgettable. Like, I would never recommend them to anybody, but just because I'm a completionist and I like film history, I did enjoy seeing them, but it just gives you a really strong example of what happens when a movie's in the hands of Billy Wilder versus a more conventional filmmaker. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, just on the uh, double indemnity, uh, the music I wanted to mention as well, uh, it was nominated for best music score. Um, and the music is absolutely incredible. Is it uh, Edward Dimitrik or Dimitri Tiamkin or who did it? Is it Dimit- Edward uh, Dimitri's the director. Sorry, yeah, Dimitri Tiamkin. Miklos, Miklos Roja did oh, the music. Cool. And he's just that big dun 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 dun. Well, I love the credits when you've got the silhouette of the man like walking toward uh, walking toward frame. And it, it, gorgeous opening credits sequence. But yeah, Miklos Incredible, Rosa. Yeah. And the crutches as well, yeah. Miklos Rosa, yeah. He did a bunch of movies. Did Ben Hur, uh, Spellbound, Lost Weekend. Oh, so Lost Weekend. So he, yes. he and Billy Wilder obviously got a chance to. Uh, apparently, Lost Weekend, which also won Best Picture, it's basically a chance for Billy Wilder to exercise all of his frustrations over working with Raymond Chandler because it's a movie about a drunk. I don't know if that's true or not, but it is one of the best movies about alcoholism ever made. Yeah. Um, definitely, Barbara Stanwyck should have won the best, uh, best, and the man should have won for the music. But yeah, the Lost Weekend, I've heard that too. And. Uh, I actually bought the book, uh, which I'm about to read, which is supposed to be a fantastic book by this guy, Charles Jackson. Uh, again, another incredible uh, 1930s um, novel about the uh, guy's drunken weekend. And I watched the movie um, last week because I haven't seen it in years, just to sort of be completionist. And I'd seen it before, but it's absolutely fucking amazing. It's oh, yeah, brilliant. I haven't seen it since college, but it's, uh, it, it's, I remember absolutely loving and adoring it. And, yeah, for anybody who's ever maybe had w- one too many, <laughs> you will be able to relate to the story. Yeah, and, and exactly. People say that it was his antidote to Raymond Chandler. Like, he'd worked with the drunk. You know, and like Chandler sort of claimed that he wasn't really drinking. Well, Chandler was drinking when he was in Hollywood and he, and he, he would he would hang out. He, he sort of liked the company of writers and they would all hang out and go to the bar together and he was sort of like a, a senior figure and he would, you know, go on with them all. And, you know, once his initial sort of shyness or frosty front um, went down. But, yeah, it was almost his revenge or whatever. It was the perfect research for making Lost Weekend was working with Raymond Chandler. But then he became... Uh, as you say, he, he he was brought in to work on these scripts. Uh, I watched them too as well. But essentially, they 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 sort of box it like they want. What they did was they kept him on contract after Double Indemnity because it was kind of a hit. And Chandler was happy to be you know sort of gainfully employed. I mean, it, it sort of put a stall to his novel writing, but because he was on contract, and it, what the producer saw him was um, a dialogue. Coat, like a dialogue like he would be brought in to freshen up the dialogue again i don't particularly notice that on either of these like you notice it more well also on, he's working tomorrow. with a lot of writers so it's one of those things where producers love to just like turn loose an entire staff of writers and see what they come up with but this is an example of why novelists should not go work for hollywood write your books do your thing. Exactly. But like exactly. Ernest Hemingway, his approach to Hollywood was uh, he had some famous line about how you drive up to the border of California, you hold your material over the state line, and with your other hand, accept the check, and then you drive away. And 
it allowed Ernest Hemingway to continue to write books as opposed to getting chewed up by the Hollywood machinery. Or you do what William Faulkner did, just stay in Mississippi and get shit-faced on, like, you know, corn whiskey and that sort of thing, and, uh, you know, send your, send your pages in by telegram. But, yeah, Hollywood can eat up writers and novels if you are lucky enough to have a career as a novelist artist already underway. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think he, he, he just, because Chandler was, like we've mentioned, he was such a perfectionist with every sentence. The idea that, you know, he would be thrown in with other writers or a couple, producer could change a scene at the last minute really would annoy him, you know, like he wanted to be the author of the film and he thought the screenplay was everything. And I think the longer he lasts in Hollywood, the more he realized that there were other sort of things you could concede to that would add to the film. But yeah, with that, and now tomorrow um, he was brought in as a dialogue coach, and it's a yeah. I quite enjoyed it. I actually thought I'd enjoy the other one more because it's a horror movie, The Unseen. But and now tomorrow is a movie starring Alan Ladd and Loretta Young, as you said, who who died when she was thirty nine. Uh, this is incredibly beautiful woman. Uh, or sorry, yeah, she no, was I'm, in like The Stranger not, for Orson Welles, and yeah, I love Loretta. Not, not, not Loretta Young. It's it's uh, it's the actress from The Unseen. Actually, it's Gail Russell. Oh, Gail she, Russell. She, gotcha. she she died already, which quite a few of these actresses did. Well, they uh, looked hard back it, then. It, I mean, the, look at like um, it was hard. Yeah. Uh, who is it? Who is the um, the? Oh my God, I'm totally blanking. Uh, I'm blanking on the girl's name. I'm blanking on the guy that she used to bone. Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes used to get it on with... Kick yourself in your head. Why? Oh, Jean Harlow. Jesus, yeah. But Jean, Jean Harlow, Harlow, she died when she was like wow. in her late 20s, and they said every time she exhaled, it smelled like like, like an open sewer. Like her, her whole, whole body was just rotten. But anyway, people lived hard back then. Illnesses sure would did. go misdiagnosed. And everybody's smoking and drinking and eating mayonnaise for breakfast. And it's just, yeah. It, it, was, just a, it was a hard time to be alive. You look at Bogey in the early 40s, and he's in his early 40s, and he looks like 80, like a virile, strong 80, but he still has got like the, like the lines and the wrinkles. And like, you know, now people just seem a lot more youthful. And, uh, you know, it, just, it was just a different era. People lived hard then, but it gave him a lot of character and a lot of personality. It certainly did, yeah. And I mean, added into a lot of the richness of a lot of these stories. And yeah, like you mentioned before, a lot of them were vets coming back and, you know, veterans, and they'd seen horrendous things. Uh, even Chandler himself, because uh, he didn't fight in the Second World War, but for, fought in the First World War. And he had said, uh, he never mentioned it in any of his correspondence. Around, there's just one line in it where he says, uh, once you've led a platoon into uh, machine gun fire, Nothing is ever the same. Yeah. And that was like sort of yeah, where he left that. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, the, and now tomorrow kind of, I quite enjoyed it. It's kind of like, it's one of these movies where everyone go, everyone says, Dar- darling, you know, everyone's called darling. Darling, did you meet? Darling, did you? You know, and they, and it's up this sort of new English society. Um, and it's about this woman, Loretta Young, and she's, she's deaf through meningitis and Alan Ladd is this dashing doctor who is searching for a cure for meningitis. Will he cure her? Like it would have made like a great he... Betty Davis vehicle, something like uh, mm. like dark victory and things like that. Yeah. I mean, you can see like Alan Ladd is sort, sort of like a Chandler character just dropped into this completely random film, you know, like this high society movie, you know, he comes out with these lines like, Deafness isn't the only thing I'd like to cure you of, or and stuff like that. And uh, um, you know, she says, "You're not afraid of pain, or maybe even like it." Or, you know, or he says to her, and she's, "How dare you?" She's very affronted. He's sort of seen as uncouth. There's a great scene in it where you know he's at a dinner party and they introduce Anna. Lattie. What does he do? And she says, "Oh, well, unfortunately, he works." 
<laughs> so like he's, he's actually like he, he actually has to get up in the morning you know he's not one of these sort of like landed gentry going around swanning around so yeah and there's a there's a great scene also uh, he kind of despises our family as well like they fired his dad yeah. decades ago he's he's working yes. class and yeah. he's uh he's carved his own destiny whereas the person he's trying to help she's under the manor born and um the only problem that she's ever had is that meningitis has cost her her hearing but otherwise she's led a life of of ease yeah, and there's a bit of to and fro with her sister having off with her fella who obviously she shouldn't be with. She should be with Alan Ladd. There's a great scene where he gets called out to operate on some kid in this like tenement slum. And she says, oh, I'll drive you. And he's like, look, you don't want to be around this sort of thing. And she's like, what are you talking about? And, you know, they they arrive and she's in her furs, you know, and her, her ermine and everything. And it's like absolute squalor. And they operate on this kid. Um I thought that was really good and well done. Uh, but that was kind of about it, you know, didn't really. And there's a, there's a couple of scenes at the beginning. I suppose what what, what was um, probably interesting about it, I think it was produced by Joseph Sistrom and it introduced Chandler to Alan Ladd, who he'd end up to go on working with. So in keeping him in the system and keeping him ticking over, it was from a novel that they obviously bought the rights to. And it kept Chandler on the payroll, you know, and then and it was made in 1944. 1944 was Chandler's sort of anus mirabilis. It was his year when every, you know, in 44, Murder, My Sweet comes out. He's just written Double Indemnity and being nominated for an Oscar. They're gearing up. They're shooting The Big Sleep, although it wouldn't come out until 46, like we talked about, because they wanted to add in those extra scenes. There was a couple of other Marlowe novels being worked on so he kind of like rode the crest of that wave pretty high that year in 1944 as well um hugely significant the paperback of the big sleep came out so the big sleep was initially published with on a run of 10,000 copies sold hardback sold really well the paperback run was 400,000 copies and these were shipped off a lot of them to the front the soldiers were introduced to the character of Marlon so all the time he's gaining more sort of like leeway in Hollywood through his screenwriting career but also through the novels that are becoming more and more hot properties and then yeah 1945 he works on The Unseen which I don't know it's kind of stodgy gothic horror remind me a little bit of turn of the screw which obviously was made into the innocents in the early 60s very similar situation where you've got a governess looking after these kids with a secret and you're not quite sure if the kids are like working with a serial killer or being victimized by a serial killer or is, is there a ghost or whatever but for me if you've read the henry james novel or if you've seen the innocents stick with those the unseen is best left unseen in comparison yeah, a, to those other two versions. Yeah. Well, if you if, if you have that little snare drum simple bit, put it in there because yeah, that, I think you know it, there's a reason why it's the unseen. I guess. I mean the the copy as well. Like some of the like I found this on YouTube. Or, yeah, it's, or maybe, it's almost inaudible. So, so it's, it's definitely inaudible. It's, it's not served well by the deteriorated copy that's available. Yeah. It's really, really poor. The only copy that's available, and it's hard. To, you can't buy it on DVD. But the novel's got a cool title. The Ethel Lena White novel is called Her Heart in Her Throat, which is very dramatic, which I like. Yeah, no, brilliant. And I mean, like, I mean, if, even if it was, even if it was tarted up and restored, I think it would still be a bit stodgy because yeah, you have the two cutesy kids, you know, and what do they know and what they don't know. 
I remember like the whole the whole denouement, like when it kind of finally comes out who the killer is. It's all it's all done off camera. It's like it's not done right. You know, you, the guy it's revealed to be the the doctor or whatever, and he storms out, and you can hardly even see him in frame. You know, it, it, like, again, that's where a Billy Wilder or someone would really have you know ramped up this material. Or like a Jacques Tourneur or someone like that. Like someone oh, yeah. who's really good with like moody shadow play and things like that. Like there are a lot of filmmakers from this era who would have been ideal for handling this material. But as it, as it is, it's just it's kind of conventional and kind of forgettable. And it, ha- it had those little moments. But if you're, someone's going to watch a moody, shadowy thriller from the 40s, there are a lot of other movies that I'm going to recommend first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it it, it kind of just it ca- kind of kept him in the system and it kept ticking along. I mean, it was... Well, it's it's probably like like you say for completists because it is doubtful. I mean, I didn't I didn't watch, I'd never seen this film, and I'm sort of Raymond Chandler obsessive. But I hadn't seen this before the last week or two because um, it's pretty much I doubt if this film would even be remembered if his name wasn't associated to yep. it. You know, and it's got John it, McRae is a huge star. Herbert Marshall's a huge yeah. star, but. Once again, they got a million other movies. I'm gonna watch a Herbert Marshall movie. I'm gonna watch like Trouble in Paradise. If I'm gonna watch Joel McRae, I'm gonna watch like Palm Beach Story. They they got other other claims to fame. Yeah, and also in the '40s, like in '44, any movie they put out was gonna make money. Like pretty much every movie. Like the it's like Chandler arrives at sort of a peak, you know, that just sort of coincides with the end of the Second World War, and then. He kind of rides the wave. I mean, he, he complains and moans about Hollywood all the time, but that's just his, you know, but he's, but it's a he's major happy to pick up force. his check. 60% yeah. of the American public saw a movie a week. In the, in the, uh, the peak of movie attendance in history was 1946, so Hollywood is building toward its peak in movie attendance. And a large part was that it was World War II. People were fucking sad and depressed and concerned and worried, and so people went to the movies in droves, both for the news and for information, but also for entertainment and escapism, and so it was a very good time to be in the movie biz. Yeah, so, and then when they came back from the war in 46, for, you know, people started raising families, do, you know, like the whole thing just fell off a cliff. You and know, yeah, TV coming does. along, and so, yes, the, the business changed. But, yeah, at, at, at this time, Hollywood held the American public in the palm of their hand. lipstick on, mister. Yes, Alan Ladd is in action again, and this time he's in a jam that's going to take a lot of fast talking and straight shooting to get out of. He's wanted by the police. He's wanted by a murder gang. And he's very much wanted by Veronica Lake. You've never seen me before tonight. Every guy's seen you before. Somewhere. The trick is to find you. William Bendix as Ladd's best pal. You think we're going to help you tie a murder to a guy who's flown us through 112 missions? You're off your nut. We haven't accused Morrison of murder so far. No, what's holding you up? Johnny, don't you realize you're in danger here? That isn't what worries me. I came here to do something. But you fixed that too. Johnny! So long, baby. Okay. Give it to him. 
Wise guy, huh? on to one of the big dogs in the in the world of film noir not only because of the movie but also because of how it was kind of sucked into and became a part of one of the most notorious unsolved crimes in LA history the Black Dahlia story but it, that name for Black Dahlia was uh, derived from the film The Blue Dahlia from 1946 directed by George Marshall written by Raymond Chandler a movie with a ton of cool stuff on it but sadly with an ending that for my money doesn't quite fit because it was foisted upon him he had to make this last minute change which led to one of the worst cases of writer's block that he ever had and you can totally see how the movie's got all these like the structurally all these building blocks building toward the ending that organically makes sense and they're like wait a second what in any event it's definitely worth seeing it's essential viewing for fans of film noir but for people out there who have not heard of the blue dahlia set it up for us what 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 is going on with this film yeah you're you're Absolutely right. In in uh, you know it really really works up until towards the the end. But it's I love this film. It's so it's a brilliant noir. Looks fantastic. It's great cast. So the story of the film of the the Blue Dahlia is the story of these three army buddies who arrive back from the front. I mean they're furloughed or the war is still going on, but they arrive back and the first shot is a bus pulling up and on the front of it says Hollywood and a bigger shithole they could not walk out onto. I, mean, I think this is very much a commentary of Chandler's been in Hollywood for two years now and they walk out to, you know, like everything is downhill from when they arrive in this place called Hollywood and they spy across the road, a bar and they go into a bar and have a drink. And then Alan bourbon Ladd, with the bourbon chaser, a bourbon with a bourbon chaser, exactly. It's uh, <laughs> um, just to get themselves pepped up for the for the day's activities. Um, and there's three of them. There's like Alan Ladd, who's who's a bomber pilot. There's uh, Buzz, who is William Bendix, incredible actor, absolutely brilliant. Uh, and then George, I can't remember who the actor is. He's kind of like the middle child of the three the who doesn't have the water. yeah who doesn't have doesn't, exactly doesn't have a, a, a stand out of who's a lawyer uh and they're obviously fairly tight the three buddies and they're coming back into this world and then alan ladd goes back to meet his wife uh and she's having a crazy party while he's away and she has been having a fine time she's been screwing everything it, that it goes, almost goes. seems like she's running like a brothel like out of their yeah. home like it's like it's a party but it seems like a little bit more than a party yeah it's a it's a wild party and and alan lad walks into it and you know a woman throws himself at him and you know and she's like oh my god what she, she has a husband and then the the wife um, is is um, is um, having an affair with this mobster guy who's who's um, he's he's essentially the Eddie Mars character in this film. You know the guy who owns the nightclub, 
Uh, Howard De Silva, brilliant. He plays him really brilliantly. And a lad punches him. But anyway, it, it is revealed that um, over a, a, a little serious chat, once everyone's buggered off, that um, the child they had together is dead. And contrary to her story of the child dying of a fever or an accident. Actually, she killed the kid when she was drunk driving one night because, hey, she wanted to go to a party and there was no babysitter, so what the fuck am I supposed to yeah, do? Classy. So, yeah. yeah. So, like I was going to go to the hospital to deliver the baby. Instead, I decided just to deliver it in a dumpster. Like, I mean, just exactly. ir- irresponsible parent. So, uh, Anna Ladd is uh, suitably enraged by this news. He gets his service revolver. You think he's going to shoot her. And he manages to hold it together and he just, you know, walks out into the rain in disgust. But, of course, the next morning she is discovered dead and the Blue Dahlia is the story of who killed her. I mean, this is a whodunit. This isn't like um, Double Indemnity. It's a, it's a mystery, like a, like a Marlowe story, like a, like a murder mystery. And the rest of the film is trying to find out who, uh, who killed um, Alan Ladd's wife in the early part of the film. Yeah, and it's and a it's, shame that the ending was compromised. And for re- the reason it was compromised is because at the time of this movie's release, propaganda was uh, a very, very big deal, and the Naval War Office wanted to avoid disparaging an American serviceman because as, a, as we learn, or as we should have learned, Buzz, who has a plate in his head, who's got a lot of post-traumatic stress, like if he hears jazz music, he flies into a rage. He's got a lot of pain, a lot of confusion. And he's always getting in fights and he has like gaps in his memory. We see him come back from some traumatic event where he can't Mm. stay awake and he lies down. And we know Mm. something horrible has happened because we saw him drinking with Alan Ladd's wife earlier and he's got this sudden gap. And so all the trail of breadcrumbs has been established like, oh, whatever happened, it was probably unfortunate, but perhaps he wasn't completely in control. But where is this all building Mm. to? But because he was a serviceman, they had to change it. And it's just like when you get to a certain point where it's like everything's being unveiled at the end, you can almost see like the ghosts of the movie that should have been made, kind of just like you can kind of see it through the the actual story that you're watching. And so it's, I mean, obviously there have been plenty of movies that have been ruined or compromised or changed due to producers or forces beyond the filmmaker's control. But I know for Raymond Chandler, this was a really difficult experience for him. Yeah, it was um, exactly. It's all teed up, and 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 the problem, like, because it's a mystery. There's a couple of MacGuffins. There's a couple of sort of red herrings. So you always have an out. But obviously, it was that the idea he had was what he thought was a really interesting idea. Was that as you say, Buzz has got a metal plate in his head, and he blacks out a lot. I mean. Characters in Marlowe books black out a lot, or they get blacked out by people hitting him over the head. He loves having people get hit by head on the head by guns and blackjacks. I think blackjacks. Alan Ladd's character, character gets knocked out twice in this, and it's like every Raymond Chandler story. People are either getting like drugged up or knocked out or whatever. But that's a common recurring thing, I guess, because Raymond Chandler's probably used to blacking out and passing out. Yeah, he used to black out a lot, and he used that. And then people, yeah, people get sapped with blackjack. And I think blackjacks were sort of you know in the thirties and forties of you're in a dodgy bar and someone was, you know, needed to be ejected from the premises. The old blackjack to the old base of the skull was probably used quite a lot. And yeah, they feature a lot in these movies. Alan Ladd takes some brutal punishment. Um, but uh, yeah, the, so he, so the clues are there that, that buzz, who's this guy who has had the metal plate in his hand and he services black, 
blackouts is the killer um sorry spoiler but it's on that 70 80 years old for the movie but the 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 um what he thought was really interesting about the idea was that imagine that a guy had made a, uh, had killed someone but didn't know it so he's 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 trying to help his friends solve this mystery but not knowing that he's the person that they're trying to catch if you know what i mean he thought that was a really it's a wonderful conceit yeah it's yeah. like a wildly original story versus a routine conventional film, or at least, in, at least a routine conventional ending, where it's like, ah, oh, the butler did it. Like, it's it's very much the butler did it. You know, um, it's funny the guy who 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 ends up. So it it ends up that it's the housekeeper, as they call him, the house detective, who's called Dad, which I thought was hilarious because you know it's like Chandler's only written screenplay, and it's I, I guess it's like if he can't have the ending that he wants, at least you know he's gonna. Th- th- the 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 murderer who ends up the killer it's got to be a character called dad you know raymond chandler with his issues with his absent drunken father who is you know as he said found drunk if found at all so uh the fact that he was called dad was like paging dr freud you know yeah i love the fact he's just okay like you're talking about how the age and dog years is like how old are you dad i think dad's 56 like and he looks about 80 one of those actors who just seems to have been born with that um really haggard expression but um but the blue dahlia uh just a, a little bit about, about how the film came about is interesting because obviously after 44 after being nominated for screenplay uh, for an academy award for double indemnity and then working on the other movies they wanted to give chandler a project to work on but also at the same time uh anna ladd was drafted into the military suddenly um they didn't really you know uh, they weren't expecting it and it was kind of like rca victor in 1960 or whatever when when elvis was drafted or 59 or whatever it was you know they're like shit we got to record a lot of product and absolutely release it over the two years while Elvis is over in Germany. So Alan Ladd gets called up and they're like, they don't have an Alan Ladd project to work on. And, and uh, John Houseman is a producer here uh, and he's kind of uh, fishing around for a project that would be suitable. And he, he meets Raymond Chandler for lunch and they go to a diner and he's, he's tearing his hair out because uh, I read uh, during the week, at this time, Alan Ladd was getting twenty thousand fan letters a week. Damn! So he's a he, handsome he was, devil. He, I mean, this is years the, before he, things like Shane. And the yeah. first thing I ever saw him is he's one of the one of the reporters at the very end of Citizen Kane. But yeah, he was short, but goddamn, he was a handsome devil. So I, I totally get why the girls were uh, falling in love with him. Yeah, he was. He was. He was. He was. Uh, handsome guy yeah like shane is amazing one of the first westerns i ever saw absolutely love it but uh i watched so i got a i got a set when i was watching these movies i had this really old dvd set here uh film film noir it's like it's from universal and it's like a collection of four films so two of them are the two movies that he made with veronica lake beforehand which were the glass key and this gun for hire. I don't know if you've seen them, but I've seen they're... this gun for hire. But the glass key has yeah. always been on my to-do list. It's glass key is great. This gun for hire is 
absolutely amazing. I loved it. I just thought, what a brilliant movie. And like he, that's sort of his debut movie, even though on IMDb he's got about 30 credits before that. Also, they that. look good on oh. camera together because Veronica Lake was teeny. She was 4'11". So yeah. it made him look like he was fucking John Wayne. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So they, 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 they went together. and Yeah, people loved them together. They were like the posh and Beck, so the, 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 the Brad and Angelina of their, of their era. They, they looked good together and they made seven films together. But um, three of them, which they were sort of playing themselves in these sort of variety type movies, but four of them, as you know, um, were there's the last one was Saigon, but three of them were the you know the, the Glass Key, the Scum for Hire, and the Blue Dahlia. So so um, John Houseman meets Chandler and he says, Jesus, you know, I don't know what to do, Alan. And, and Chandler says, Look, I'm working on this Marlowe novel, but it's not going anywhere. I've got like about 120 pages of it, and I, I'm you know going to throw it in the bin. And Houseman goes, well, well, maybe we could, you know, we could work this into. A... So they go back to his house, and Chandler gives him the opening of this, what was going to be a, like a, an abandoned uh, film project, or I think maybe it was a, a Marlowe novel, or maybe it was a, a treatment. Uh, and he reads it and he loves it and he goes, look, let's, you know, this, we can turn this into the Alan Ladd movie. And he's OK. Right. So so um, they hire him on again at a at a at a decent wage. And um, he he starts writing the picture and they do that thing where they go into production without the script being finished. So they start to film and for the first couple of weeks, everything goes absolutely swimmingly. Everything goes amazing. And of course, the, 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 as you mentioned, the sort of double whammy is what, what, what knocks Chandler more out of sync is the, the ending that he has planned. He has it plotted out in his head. Buzz is going to be the killer. But then towards the end, this is um, rejected by the Navy because they don't want, uh, they don't want a serviceman you know, to, to, to be the killer. But it has that thing. Chandler's a very slow, methodical writer. So pretty soon, George Marshall, who's quite a functional director, starts to catch up with screenplay. And there's a sort of nervousness around the set. And everyone's kind of worried because Chandler's locked in his room. And the fact, and, and, and he, he's a very sort of works on, he's like a striker, a footballer who works on confidence. You know, when he's on, he's on. But when he gets his story ending rejected, for not being patriotic enough, this sort of knocks him off key, and he gets a little, he gets, he gets blocked, and he sort of, whereas before he was starts delivering five pages a day, starts hitting the, well, actually not quite. He, he, what happens is he, he, he starts delivering like a half page a day rather than six pages, uh, and people are worrying about is this project even going to, you know, a lot of people's livelihoods depend on this. So there's a guy called Henry Ginsberg, and he was the head of production at Paramount Studios and so so Chandler's agent rings him one day and says look uh, you you got to go into Henry Ginsburg's office tomorrow at 9am don't worry about it it'll be fine everything will be fine you know Chandler's <laughs> obviously completely stressed out and he, he you know he, he arrives in I, I imagine Henry Ginsburg has been like Michael Lerner you know I got maybe 40 50 writers there and give me that bottom fink feeling you know giving him that yeah. stuff in the in his military fatigues or whatever and he goes into this oak paneled office and Ginsburg, uh, remember we were talking about it. So he, anyway, Ginsburg says, look, I'm going to give you $5,000 bonus if you finish the script on time. I know you're a little bit stuck, so here's a little incentive. That's just between you and me. Don't tell uh, John Houseman about this. This is, you know, this is just uh, our thing. And it, it's like in um, The Big Sleep when Lauren McCall's agent 
sort of intercedes on her behalf with this masterstroke that turns the film into the sort of rom romantic melodrama with Bogart and and herself that we all now and love. Obviously, Ginsburg thinks he's sort of making an intervention like that, but he has completely and totally misread Raymond Chandler's character. And if yeah, you read it's the like, book, it's an exercise in psychology if you're trying to motivate a writer and you don't want to accidentally throw them even more off their game than they already are. Yeah, and and so, uh, like the the important thing that you notice in all the books is there's so Chandler had this sort of he was brought up in a Br- British public school system and he had this this whole thing was a sense of honor and that's what the character Marlowe has like Marlowe is incorruptible you can't bribe him. You know, you can't like he'll, he'll do his own thing. He'll go his own way, but but he can't be bought off. That's what makes him enduring. That's why people Integrity. like him. Integrity. Yeah. And he likes Chandler thought of himself the same way. He's like, I signed a contract to write this picture. And now this guy's waving money at me. Like this is basically he's dishonoring me. He's like he's saying we don't trust you to finish what we're paying you to do. And this completely, like he was blocked before that, but it completely throws him to a, into a headspin. Um, he's told not to mention this to John Houseman, but anyway, fuck it. He goes to John Houseman. He says, look, this is what happened. My integrity as a writer has been impugned. I cannot possibly finish this project. I'm off the project. I'm finished. The only thing that would have made Goodbye. it worse if, if, if uh, the guy had been wearing a hat at the time indoors. Like, oh! Exactly. Exactly. Offending his honor. Got his maraca cane out. Like, I told you about that maraca cane. So uh, he walks off, and Houseman is left there with makeup people and script people and continuity and gaffers and cinematographer and his whole army, and he doesn't know what to do. Uh, so it's John Houseman's turn to spend a sleepless night wondering what, how the hell this juggernaut, like they're running out of pages. It's about three or four pages of script left to shoot. Uh, so the next morning, Chandler arrives in, and he he said, and he's just like, Houseman is saying, well, you know, did you think it over? And he said, well, I've thought it over, and as I said yesterday, um, there's no possible way I can finish this project. And what he kind of paraphrases is, well, actually, you know, there's, there's no possible way I can finish this project sober, essentially. Like, you see, he explains to Houseman that he has been sort of like that he's a recovering alcoholic and that he hasn't sort of drunk in years and that he's been sort of dipping in and out. But, but he'd been sober for this entire project, The Blue Dahlia, because it was a big break from his first screenplay. Um, and now that his trust has been broken, now that he's in this sort of place where he's completely constrained, there's no way he can do what it takes to finish the script unless he is drunk, uh, unless he starts drinking. And he says to Houseman, and when I say drinking, when I say drunk, I mean, in an alcoholic haze for the next week, essentially, because we talked about this just before we started recording, like the whole myth about writers and alcohol. And there's, there's a book I have in, 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 on the shelf there, and it's called The Thirsty Muse, which is an amazing title for a book. And it's all about alcohol and how it works with various writers and generally to the detriment. But there was something in alcohol that Chandler said unlocked things in his subconscious that would be able to, in this pressured scale, get him to finish the book. And in the same way that he wrote this letter to um, to complain about Billy Wilder's uh, uh, mis- misbehavior on this yellow uh, line paper that he used to like, he brought out a sheet of paper, and I'm just referring to this because I think it's hilarious. He said, 
here's what I need for the next 10 days to finish the project. A, two Cadillac limousines to stand by day and night outside the house with drivers available for one, fetching the doctor, Ray or Sissy's doctor or both. Two, taking script pages to and from the studio. Three, driving the maid to market because you've got to get your groceries in. Four, contingencies and emergencies because when you're drinking all day, <laughs> these might be the odd emergency. B, six secretaries in relays of two to be in constant attendance and readiness, available at all times for dictation, typing, and other poss possible emergencies, 24 hours a day. So if he <laughs> wanders out at five in the morning and says, I've got a great idea for this scene, there has to be a secretary on call ready to take it down. C, a direct line open at all times to my office by day and studio switchboard at night. Uh, if you give me all those things, and if you allow me to drink, we can finish this project. So John Husband doesn't know what to do. He's just like completely gobsmacked by this ridiculous proposition. Well, luckily, Houseman did have a lot of experience, though, as like the midwife for Orson Welles in the late 30s, early 40s. So he dealt with temperamental geniuses in the past and Orson in his, in his early 20s was basically taking speed around the clock drinking constantly like like just he was a complete total maniac but some those are some of his most creative years but John Houseman was there every step of the way so I think John Houseman was a veteran when it came to dealing with these larger than life personalities absolutely and the great thing was, in terms of their relationship, he was an English public schoolboy just like uh, Chandler so Chandler felt this is one guy in this whole bunch of shysters that I can trust. Or, you know, uh, if I give him my word, I have to do it because, you know, this sense of honor between the two of them. Like he felt he could, he could you know, he could trust Houseman. And Houseman goes and talks to Joseph Sistrom. And these are the two producers who, you know, have been in the wars with Chandler throughout his group. And Joseph Sistrom says, like, what are you going to do? Of course you got to do it. Like, you, you know, I mean, you want to finish this. Like, if you don't finish this picture, you're finished. Your career is finished. Everyone associated with it. It's a fucking train wreck. You got to yeah, do it. That's, that's filmmaking. Filmmaking is high level pro problem solving with dire consequences. <laughs> so yeah. So he goes back into Ray and he says, "Okay, let's do this. It sounds fucking crazy, but let's do it." So Ray <laughs> is immediately in a dapper mood and he goes, "Okay, great. Let's go to lunch." So they go to lunch on Houseman. Uh, and over lunch, Ray, Ray Chandler has three double martinis oh, followed Jesus by Christ. followed by three double stingers. And he's, his form improves considerably. I would have been in the hospital. I mean, if I have three martinis, I am destroyed. If I have one martini, I feel great. Two, I'm, I'm hammered. But three, it's like I'm, I'm done for days. Like don't, don't, like, don't try to reach me. Yeah, so he's three double martinis, three double stingers. They've, he's completely pissed out of his face. Uh, Houseman has to drive him back to his house in La Hala. Chandler kind of staggers upstairs, goes into the door, and John Houseman thinks, "What the fuck have I done? This is insane." <laughs> and then he, he, a couple of days, he comes back the next morning, or maybe two days later, and he opens the door. The door, he opens the door, walks in. And Chandler's passed out, drunk, on the floor of the living room, and beside him is a stack of pages, and that's that day's shooting pages. And he picks them up, and he goes off, and for the next. Eight days, Chandler is not sober for one minute. He spends the entire eight days in an alcoholic haze. He doesn't eat. So they had, they had, um, they had a Dr. Feelgood type who would arrive and inject him with glucose. Oh, God. So he didn't have to eat. And he would just basically, as soon as he peeled himself off the floor, 
in the morning. He pour himself a large scotch, start drinking, start dictating to these two young typists who are sitting there <laughs> watching this fucking insanity take place in front of their eyes. Like, you know. And then he sort of keel over maybe five in the morning, two in the afternoon. Who knew? Like time had no place. This was just this entered into a whole stream of He's consciousness. Entering into a flow state. <laughs> he was in a flow state. And he finished the script within the 10 days and they shot the movie and they got the ending. And yeah, it's a bit of a pat ending and yet it's not the ending that he intended, but somehow they finished the picture and uh, nearly killed him. And that's how he made it, which is kind of nuts really. But yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a story that's in its own way kind of eclipses the movie itself, I really do enjoy this movie, but it is it is frustrating when this fascinating film noir suddenly becomes just much more ordinary toward the end. But much like the story of Raymond Chandler kind of eclipsing the movie itself, you also have the Black Dahlia killing, which is the most mm. gruesome, horrific... I mean, if you want to get like... I don't know if I should recommend this to people or not, but if you, if you have a taste for the dark or if you have a, an appetite for the rough stuff... Look up the the image of uh, and uh, and a detailed analysis of what happened to um, Elizabeth Short's body, and it's one of the greatest unsolved killings in Hollywood history. Obviously, it's been tackled by James Elroy with his novel, which is a part of his giant L.A. quartet or quintet. I always forget if it's a quartet mm. or quintet, but really one of his best. It's basically the prequel to L.A. Confidential. That's a fascinating thing. But the bartender. Who basically got the name wrong? The film had been playing down the street. Elizabeth kept coming by this bar. He gave her the nickname Black Dahlia. And so then, when the newspapers dubbed the case Black Dahlia, it's a morbid twist on the film's title. And anyway, it made the movie Blue Dahlia all the more famous due to its connection to this notorious unsolved killing in Hollywood. Yeah, like it was a huge smash. It was a big, big smash of a movie, I guess, because Alan Ladd is. I read it was one of the biggest. Uh, films in the box office in the UK as well and that was probably due to Chandler's name being attached to it and, and, and people in the UK sort of took and France were taken to Chandler almost more than people were in their ho- home audience uh, again that the I have a, I've read this book by James Elroy um, called My Dark Places and it's it's biographical it's not fiction and so you know James Elroy I don't know you know his mother was murdered yeah and around the time of the Black Dahlia murders. And he became obsessed with the Black Dahlia murder because he thought the same killer killed his mother. And he, it, it kind of sent him in a road of craziness and speed and drugs and, and, and ended up with him becoming a crime writer, um, all based on that. Yeah, it was just a year after or six months or a year after this movie came out. It's almost like the Clockwork Orange or something. The film became more famous for the violence associated with it than with the movie itself, which is, yeah, um, understandable in a way. And I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, because the ending is tagged on, it's like, it's not, it's not the big sleep, you know, and it, there's some, there's some brilliant stuff in it. And what I think is really good in it happens early on in the film and atmospherically it is fantastic Absolutely. it's raining all the time you know and and every time he walks out the streets are slick with rain it's dark it's beautifully shot one of the most interesting things about this film i think is um 
I, and again, uh, Alan Ladd, Diana, I can't remember the actress who plays Alan Ladd's wife. It's absolutely incredible. Um, she, um, Diana Andrews, I think is her name. She, she's amazing. And the sort of the film loses a bit of a light when she's killed early on because she's just such a sort of brazen, you know, hussy. But but she she, she embraces her. all the vices of the day. Yeah. So Doris Dowling Absolutely. plays Helen Sorry. Morrison. Doris Dowling. Yeah, she's amazing. And and um, but what's interesting about their scenes is so he he comes back from a war. I mean, you know, it's it's not coming home you know, the, the Nam movie, but it's kind of, it's got that, it's got that fatalistic, horrible, dark, dour, depressing. The first scene is, um, where they go for their bourbon with a bourbon chaser and Alan Ladd picks up his drink and he goes, well, here's to what was. And he knocks back his drink. You're like, here's to what was, you know, this is the opening scene of the movie. It's a bit of a Debbie Downer there, Alan Ladd, but yeah, every kind of like, he knows almost that everything in the movie is going to get shitter and shitter until, cause now he's back, like a lot of servicemen, they've left this organized world and now he's back in Hollywood, this cesspool where there's no morality and there's no honor and there's no, you know, people just behave appallingly to each other. And yeah, which was kind of an inconvenient thing for a lot of people. But if you watch a movie like the best years of our lives, everybody likes to believe like, Oh, when you got out of world war two, you just came home as a conquering hero and everybody threw a parade for you. But my grandfather fought in world war two. His favorite movie about world war two was not anything about combat, but it was the best years of our lives because it dealt with, the basically like like the the crossroads where you found yourself coming back from the war trying to adjust to civilian life and the blue dahlia definitely taps into that as well absolutely what 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 for me what really works is that the the scenes and they're short scenes between with alan ladd and his wife and he's basically you know he wants to have a conversation he clears out the party and he's saying look you know could you please stop drinking? Could you put this? She's like, oh, fucking yeah. drink what I want. Who are you walking in? You know, she's like, oh, maybe you learn to, you know, maybe you, maybe you, maybe you learn to like hurting people while you're away. You know, taps into so many things. Like, yeah, maybe you did like running around killing people, and it was sort of allowable. And and also the the women are out of the kitchen now. Like they're yeah, working. They've been in independent the last couple of years, and they like it. And they like it and they can drink and they can smoke and they're working in munitions factories so they can, you know, they can um, have their own money and they can support themselves. And this is a conflict. And Lad is obviously, he's that traditional, he's Shane, or he's a traditional, I hate to use the word patriarchal, but he's that character and she's yeah, the sort the of old new school woman. father knows best kind of guy. Yeah. Like I, I, I watched this amazing interview with Veronica Lake, like Veronica Lake, who was stunning in this and who had a tragic, um, she she um was also an alcoholic and had uh, an ignominious sort of like she by the mid 60s she was working in a bar in uh times square she's working as a yeah, as, one as of the most glamorous movie stars of the 1940s yeah. but it, it did not last and she 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 was talking about they had some photo they, they brought her to a munitions firm because she was famous for this hairstyle called the peekaboo hairstyle where one bit of her hair went over one eye you know like human league kind of thing you know and she and uh i mean and and they photographed her at the munitions factory and saying, look, if your hair is hanging like this, it could get cut because they'd had accidents where women's hair had get caught up in the machinery and been literally almost pulled off their scalp. 
that's why it was mandated then, like our face masks, that you had to tie your hair in a bun if you were working on the production line. Because the birth of the man bun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there was a w- women bun first, you know, and then co-opted, you know, like by uh, by blokes. But, uh, yeah, she was amazing. And um, she made these th- three movies. And, uh, so I thought that was uh, incredibly interesting, the sexual politics in the early part of the film, you know, before it goes into a bit of a sort of too neat and tidy for Chandler's world. And uh, the other thing was, in this film and in the uh, Glass Key, more so in the Glass Key, they get Alan Ladd's character and they bring him to some place away up in the Catskills or whatever, the LA version, and beat the shit out of him. And this is a recurring theme in these movies. But in the Glass Key, William Bendix is the bad guy and he brings Alan Ladd to this place. He works him over with blackjack. I mean, the guy should be dead. He's got busted ribs, his eyes. Are, like, they really, really give him a going over. And uh, I kept thinking of the LA Confidential when Dudley Smith has this house that they bring people to. To, to, <laughs> to torture them. and intimidate. To, to torture them, yeah, exactly. Get, this is get the city of the angels, boy and you haven't got yeah. any wings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is obviously, you know, a, a trope from these movies that they would bring these people there and beat the crap out of them. And Alan Ladd usually... You, through his ingenuity, would escape from them, but but yeah, I. Um, Do people say uh, "boyo" in Ireland still, or is that just like an, an American movie thing? Well, not really. No, more in Wales. They say "I like boyo." It's more of a Welsh thing. Gotcha. But, uh, uh, just a Brit on, on L.A. Confidential is one of my favorite films of all time. Oh, it's killer! But yeah. Think, but the thing, if I could change one thing of that movie, not that you know, whatever. It's a brilliant movie. I would not cast, um, I can't remember, Dudley Smith, the guy who plays Dudley Smith, like, uh, James Cromwell, can't do an Irish accent. His Irish accent is terrible. And he's nothing like the character should be. I mean, if it was the accent, fine. I mean, I always, in my fancy, like, imagine Clint Eastwood was playing that part, you know, or someone really, really hard-assed. And you don't need to do an Irish accent, but yeah, I just that's the one flaw I have with that. Absolutely impeccable movie. He has that one line where he says, like, I wouldn't trade places with uh, Ed Exley right now for all the whiskey in Ireland. And he does it with, like, almost like a little bit too much of an Irish accent. And Americans always think, oh, all you got to do is just, like, lean into your R's and your Irish. And it's like, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Because like, people, Americans always assume that Ireland, the entire country, has the same accent. And it's like, no, there's like a thousand Irish accents. <laughs> it all depends. On, you go, go, down, oh, go yeah. down, the, down the street and you're going to find another accent. Oh, yeah. Every county has a different accent. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I, mean, I, I love Alan Coffey. It's one of my, my favorite movies, actually. I think it's brilliant. But that, that, that would be a little tweak. But, but yeah, that, that, that sort of bracing station that they bring people to to beat seven shades out of them is something that pops up in a lot of these movies. So, uh, yeah, uh, the Glass Key, uh, sorry, the Blue Dahlia is a – I think it's a really good movie. It's probably not a great movie. I mean, it's not Double Indemnity. Yeah, it's not, Double Indemnity is an essential classic. Blue Dahlia yeah. is – just a hell of a lot of fun for people who love the hard-boiled genre and or film noir. And if you love the hard-boiled genre and or film noir, there's a good chance you've already seen it a couple of times because it's definitely one of the essentials. Yeah, you've got, got to check it out. If you're if you're into film noir, it's 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 not – it doesn't hold you right – like double indemnity. Like, yeah, I would the, say it's the, one of those movies the, like the Kiss ending. Me Deadly or one of those movies like Asphalt Jungle where they're, they're really, really cool, but they're not – the the like the creme de la creme like the creme de la creme I would put something like 
like The Killing by Stanley Kubrick mm. or Touch of Evil by Orson Welles. Like there's like there's the elite of the elite, and then you got like a hundred fucking amazing ones that are also well worth seeing as well. Yeah, yeah, or out of the past, like you mentioned before. I, I watched that recently because which is incredible. But something like Double Indemnity, it holds you to the last frame. Like, and we didn't talk about it just briefly. I've done a backtrack, but the end of Double Indemnity, like in the book, because uh, you uh, read it uh, yourself, um, at the end of the book, they both get away. Like they're, they're on a boat going to Mexico. You know, like the, it's a, the film is even crueler than the book. Like, I mean, it's more vicious. Part of it because of the the brain office, you can't show these people getting away with murder. Yeah. They have yeah, to die. Part of like the, the, they came up with like a rule for all as a, a morality code for all the films, and killers had to be punished. Yeah. So I mean, I read somewhere that so in the end, she shoots Fred McMurray, and then he comes in closer and says, "Take you know, take another shot." You, you know, she obviously winged him. And at that moment, she sort of realizes that she loves him and that she's you know maybe this chink of light does immediately extinguish when Fred Murray shoots her in the belly dead. And people were saying when the audience saw that, they're like, whoa, this is a fucking whole different type of movie. You know, they don't kiss and go into sunset. The hero shoots the heroine and then he ends up dead on a staircase, you know, so it's a whole different thing. So that movie holds you till the last frame, whereas the Blue Dahlia falls apart with sort of 10 minutes to go. Yeah, it fizzles at the end, so it doesn't leave you with that lingering impression where you're like, holy shit, whereas Double Indemnity, you got to end on on a strong note. It's just, it's essential. Whether you're talking about Touch of Evil or whatever the case may be, go big or go home. And if if your ending just kind of, the air goes out of the balloon and it's going to, it's going to change people's lingering impressions of the film. One thing it didn't do any harm for though. Well, it did a lot of harm to Raymond Chandler physically. He was a ruin after this movie. John Houseman describes like driving up to his house. It's, in like, a, La it's like a smack house for heroin junkie. <laughs> it's just, well, Oh, he's got his check for $5,000 and he walks in and he's Chandler's there in his dressing gown. And his like skin has gone gray and his pallor. <laughs> and he's like, it gives him this five thousand dollars. This guy is like, I should be giving him twenty. Like, you've earned this five thousand dollars. Then in the kind of seventies, it started to transpire. A story started to come out that this whole story was concocted bullshit by Chandler. That essentially he'd been drinking all the time. Like he drank all the way through. He he carried a, a, a briefcase with him everywhere. Everywhere he went, every day he went into the studio, he carried a briefcase. One of those briefcases with a couple of compartments in it. So if you wanted to take out a pint of whiskey and throw one in, you know, a shoulder of whiskey, it could neatly fit in there. Like Billy Wilder would always describe him, sneaking drinks. Those are the real alcoholics when they're hiding their drinking. Like there, I know plenty of people who love to get fucked up every goddamn day, but they drink out in public and they're smiling mm-hmm. and laughing and telling stories. But when people start hiding bottles of wine or bottles of booze around their place or hiding half full glasses, that's when you know somebody's really circling the drain. Right. Did you say bottle of wine? Um, yeah, but we see but, that like in, in, I mean, last weekend, the Billy Water film we mentioned, like we talked about that. I mean, you see that how he's like, he just needs to know that the bottle is there and how he's, he's oh, like yeah, always hiding bottles. And then he has like, when he's going on a trip, he'll have one hidden bottle that his friends are going to discover on purpose. So, cause he knows they're going to suspect him of hiding, but his real hiding place is another bottle. Like last weekend does a brilliant job of exploring all that. Absolutely. And, but the thing about Chandler is that his issue was, he fucking hated going to the studio to write. He said, you know, like he they would they would put 
from his experience working with Billy Wilder, you know, they'd have a couch in the office. And then he went on to work for MGM and they wouldn't even put a couch in there. So he'd go to sleep on the floor or something. And, you know, the producer would walk in and see their writer that they were paying, you know, $4,000 a week at a sleep on the floor. But Chandler was a home bird. All he wanted to do was stay home with Sissy, listen to classical music. and all. So there's a certain school of thought that this whole elaborate thing was just a ruse so he could get to work from home. Gotcha. That he was basically drinking all the way through the production anyway, and they somehow made it into this heroic act. But whether that's true or whether or not the truth is probably somewhere in between, but the certainly the emotional and intellectual pressure of trying to film, finish a movie that the, the director is getting ahead of you in pages sort of ruined him. And then his output in novels sort of slows down. Then it's five, four or five years in between novels because Hollywood is taking so Hollywood much Hollywood had broken him, exactly. sapped him of his vital essence. <laughs> Got to get you a pound of flesh, you know, and it's just, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's um, succubus, succubus sucking away at him. And by the time he's finished with that, he's, he's half the man he used to be. But, He's got a fair few quid in his bank accounts in which to um, go off and write. The uh, He goes in and writes The Little Sister. And like all good writers, he takes kind of revenge. It's like you said, uh, Billy Wilder used Chandler as the inspiration for The Long Goodbye. And then The Little Sister, Marlowe, so it sort of deals with Hollywood a little bit, you know, and, and there's a movie producer character in it called Jules Oppenheimer that Marlowe meets in an office or meets in a, in a, in a garden somewhere for no other reason other than just to poke ridicule at movie producers. You know, it's not part of a plot or anything. And then, uh, then he would go on to write the long goodbye. You know, he'd find, when he finally gets away from the clutches of Hollywood to write what is his best novel. But before that, he has one last sort of bout with another master and that is strangers on a train want to hear one of my ideas for a perfect murder you want to hear the busted light socket in the bathroom or the uh carbon monoxide in the garage neither one i i may be old-fashioned but i thought murder was against the law what is a life for two guys some people are better off dead like your wife and my father for instance Oh, that reminds me of a wonderful idea I had once. I used to put myself to sleep at night, figuring it out. Now, let's say that, that you'd like to get rid of your wife. It's a morbid thought. No, 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 no. Just suppose. Let's say that you had a very good reason. Now, let's, let's, no, no, let's, let's say. Now, you'd be afraid to kill her. You know why? You'd get caught. And what would trip you up? The motive. Ah, now here's my idea. I'm afraid I haven't got time to listen, Bruce. Listen, it's so simple, too. Two fellows meet accidentally, like you and me. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Swap murders. <laughs> Each fellow does the other fellow's murder. Then there's nothing to connect them. Each one has murdered a total stranger. Like, you do my murder, I do yours. We're coming into my station. For example, your wife, my father. Crisscross. What? Oh, we do talk the same language, don't we? Well, sure, Bruno, we talk the same language. Thanks for the lunch. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I thought the lamb chops were a little overdone myself. Nice meeting you. Now, 
You think my theory's okay, guy? You like it? Sure, Bruce. Sure. They're all okay. Well, let's dive into the last film on our list. A movie that, for me, marks the beginning of the richest period of Alfred Hitchcock's career. He'd had several you know, less well-received kind of sort of outright failures, like I think like four movies prior to this, but starting with Strangers mm. on a Train, Hitchcock goes on this tear that basically lasts up through like Marnie or at a bare minimum like Psycho and the Birds and that sort of thing where this is an era that includes North by Northwest and Rear Window and Vertigo and it's just Hitchcock could kind of do no wrong during this period. So for me, this is kind of a comeback movie and to what degree Raymond Chandler can claim any credit for that, I don't know because there were he wasn't the only writer on this. He was the most prominent writer on it, but there was a and we'll get into all the details. But the reality is, it's one of the best movies of the 1950s. It's one of the best movies of Alfred Hitchcock's career, and I think it's one of the best movies that Raymond Chandler was ever associated with. And this is the very first time the Strangers on a Train has come up on wrong reel. So let's get into all right. it. Right? Yeah. Um just before before we do just quickly I, I was actually mistaken last time we were talking about Chandler I said he never worked on a script for one of his own novels but after he worked on the Blue Dolly well around the same time 45 he worked on a script uh, screenplay for the lady in the lake um, and he got bored which is what he would always do he'd start these projects at a mile a minute and then get bored and he abandoned it uh, he 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 he, he, he wouldn't what he would keep doing was he would keep writing new scenes so and they were saying look just turn the you know we've got the book just yeah. <laughs> just do the book that's it's already why in the Louvre it. yeah exactly yeah <laughs> well he would be bored saying why would I do that so he would we would transpose it to somewhere else and they they would the producers would get frustrated uh, he described uh, he said um, I'm working on a treatment screen treatment for, of Lady in the Lake for MGM it bores me stiff the last time I'll ever do a screenplay of a book I wrote just turning over dry bones is what he described working on one of the novels that he'd already written. So the whole idea of, um, setting it, uh, the whole idea that, uh, it's a publishing house and the whole idea of Marlowe wanting to be a writer. That's all from Chandler's script. That's all, all that stuff is. Uh, so this guy, Steve Fisher, Chandler walked off the project and guy, Steve Fisher picked, picked it up and he has sole credit as the screenwriter. But if, Strangers on a Train is a film that possibly Chandler shouldn't have had his screen credit on. Then Lady in the Lake is a film that he should yeah, have he had should his have. screen. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, he worked on that. And then in 46, he, he starts work on this film called The Innocent Miss Duff, which was a novel that he loved. And he said this would make a great picture. He's just coming off like the last two movies he worked on. I've been nominated. Oh, yeah. He's nominated for an Academy Award for The Blue Dahlia again. So second film he's worked this time in for best original screenplay. Again, he doesn't win, but he's got two Academy Award nominations in two years. So he's still relatively hot. So he works on this film called The Innocent Miss Duff. And then he gets bored with it. <laughs> and then one of his letters, I'm bored with it already. I don't think I'll do any more movies. You know, so he, he would do this thing. He would attack them with a little vigor, but then get distracted. He, he, he was starting to realize that he had to love a project to give it everything and that maybe Hollywood wasn't for him. Whereas if you get into a Marlowe novel and think it was saying something, 
then he worked on Backfire. There's a seven-page treatment in UCLA for this movie called Backfire. It's kind of like the Blue Dahlia. And then in 1947, now on a contract of $4,000 a week after his hot streak, this is sort of 40, so this is just before the whole edifice comes crumbling down. He's milking the studio for four grand a week. Uh, so plus $10,000 for the story idea, he writes playback, which is uh, the last screenplay he writes before working on Strange on the Train. Um, you can read it online. It was never produced. He, he, the first uh, draft is 224 pages. Then he wrote another couple of versions. And then the studio, it was set in Vancouver. It's the first one of his films not to be set around L.A., uh, and then the studio thought, oh, go to Vancouver. It could be horrible weather. It could rain. It's quite, uh, I've, I've flicked through it. I must read the f- full thing. It, it finishes with this big action sequence on a speedboat chased by an airplane. And, you know, but it's amazing. 4000 a week, that's incredible. I mean, a writer, most writers would be thrilled, ecstatic to get 4000 a week in 2020. We're talking exactly. about over 70 years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you're thinking that, like, the, the you know, he was paid... I think three and a half thousand dollars for farewell, my lovely rights in perpetuity, you know? So obviously his, his stock had gone up and his agent had secured these deals, but he kind of knew to himself that the gig was up. I mean, essentially Chandler has this amazing meteoric two years in from 44 to 46, when not only does he write and get nominated for two Academy Awards, but also the classic I think that's pretty common for a lot of people who are creative but also have substance problems like like Preston Sturgis in the 40s was the king of Hollywood wrote a lot of great movies but he also loved to party his face off and you can only sustain that for so long I think a, a little sobriety is great for longevity but if you're a burn the candle at both ends kind of creative type you're probably going to have that 10 year rich period before things start to disintegrate whether you're talking about bands or authors or whatever the case might be or Filmmakers like Sam Peckinpah, yeah, anytime you couple substance abuse with a creative endeavor, there are probably going to be some really good, good fucking years in there. But at a certain point, just it starts to eat you alive. Yeah. And then the other thing, of course, the other monkey on his back is the old time he's doing this, he's not writing books. Yeah. And he's kind of realizes that, yeah, he's taking this money to the detriment of his art. You know, and he, no, it's back to Barton Fink. He's, uh, he's neglecting his gift. He's a playwright and he's writing a, some stupid wrestling movie. Yeah. <laughs> a writer, you animals. This is my uniform. And he points to his uh, yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, he, he has that Barton Fink sort of pretentiousness, like he, he thinks he still has he can still make an amazing piece of art, but he certainly can't do it if he's slumming around Hollywood. So the two, you know, the eternal struggle is like it art and commerce absolutely is played is played out or to quote my old so boss sid gannis so when i was an intern he used to say the problem with hollywood as an art form is that it's a business the problem with hollywood as a business is that it's an art form and that tension will always be at the heart of showbiz yeah it pulls you hither and thither. i mean in one way you could say he certainly milked it while he could you know i mean he was get he gets all that money for playback I just think it's amazing to think that there's a screenplay, you know, like it's a, just that there's a Raymond Chandler screenplay just sitting there unproduced. You know, come on, John Woo or Ter- Quentin Tarantino or something, you know, it'd be interesting to revive it. And anyway, that project pitters out. So so now he's got a problem in that the last three. So he, he was on a shit hot streak at the beginning the two, with the, the double indemnity and the, and the Blue Dahlia. But now he's getting known as a writer who Unfinished is very, very projects. expensive. Yeah. Yeah. And none of his projects make it to the screen, which is a completely different reputation that you want than the one that he had only 
a year or two ago, but that's a long time in politics and in uh, in Hollywood. So then, um, Strangers on a Train, yeah, uh, he, Hitchcock gets in touch, and he's kind of like, he hasn't written a movie in a couple of years, and he, he sort of realizes this is his last chance to get back in, and he still thinks, you know, Hollywood could be something that he could he could work his way into, um, and they they meet. I mean, he he wasn't again. It's the same story as Dublin's Empty. He wasn't the first person they wanted. Steinbeck was approached to do it. Dashiell Hammett was approached to do it. Like they wanted a name. Hitchcock wanted a name. Um, funny thing is, it, I, I bought the novel actually. Uh, I just started reading it. Patricia Highsmith. It was her first book. Yeah, and she's a uh, massive writer. Yeah, massive. Like talented Mr. Ripley and all the Ripley novels and like lo- loads of books. A brilliant, brilliant writer. Yeah, and like she uh, did the novel that got turned into um, Carol, called Price of Salt. Carol, you know, it's, I mean, she, her books are still being made into beloved films to the, to this very day. Uh, just an, uh, an amazing writer. Um, loads of films made from her books. Very, very cinematic. Uh, it's her first novel. Like Hitch, Hitchcock picked up this book, and he went, "Wow, this will make a great movie." And uh, he, he, so he bought the movie rights, but he. He got someone else to like under an assumed name. You know, he had this. It's like uh, that's how you, you, know, how you get it for cheap. If Hitchcock comes exactly. out from one of your books, oh, I want a half yeah. million dollars. But if it's Joe exactly. Schmo, oh, twenty five hundred. It's like Manchester United are interested in you. Oh, right. Well, then it's fifty million quid. You know, exactly. Like, so, so yeah. He, so she was pretty pissed off, just like Chandler was ten, fifteen years earlier. You know, the studios got it for cheap, and uh, he's like, "Well, let's make a great movie." So Hammett couldn't do it. Steinbeck couldn't do it. Loads of people turned down. They went, what about Raymond Chandler? Isn't he all washed up? Well, you know, let's go and meet him. So he met Hitchcock. He had met Hitchcock before. And they got on. And again, they both grew up in England. And they had that sort of sensibility. Uh, you know, it seemed like a sort of project made in heaven in some ways that they would get on. But it, it didn't kind of really work that way. You know, like that, that, that I think... Um, how Chandler describes it is like that that um, he, that he Chandler was again it was a perfectionist and it, it, what was important to him was the character's motivations why is he doing this why is he doing that you know that this all had to be credible and he, and and he li- believes in plausibility whereas Alfred yeah. Hitchcock is one of the most implausible filmmakers ever but his style is so intoxicating and his characters are so charming and the world he's exploring is so specific. But they're not realistic. And so you've got an author who likes gritty realism combined with a filmmaker who's famous for saying, my films aren't slices of life, they're slices of cake. So it's a clash in sensibilities in a big way. Yeah, like Hitchcock said, you know, it's life but with the boring bits edited out. You exactly. know, but in the boring bits is where you get the sort of the nitty gritty stuff that Chandler liked to, to write about. And yeah, I mean, they, so they, had a, they, would, they would meet for these script conferences and Hitchcock's thought these were like so he would just chat and have tea and go up to the house in La Hall and you know and play with Chandler's cat and it was great but after a while Chandler's like I don't know what he wants me to do I don't you know like what's Hitchcock was like just write the script you know I'm like I'm gonna make an Alfred Hitchcock film anyway so why don't you just get on with it but yeah I guess Chandler found Hitchcock vague and it started to sort of, this personality started to rub against well, Hitchcock each Hitchcock is such a visual filmmaker. He's not a writer. As Billy Wilder's a writer, like a hardcore writer. But yes. Hitchcock is all about designing beautiful shots and designing wildly 
st- over stylized sequences, unlike anything we'd ever seen before, in particular in this film, where the end with like the carousel, it's like the most intense, over the top mise en scene and insane rapid fire editing. It's like almost like a Russian experimental film from the 20s. You're like, oh my God, like how intense can this movie become? But it's not. Chandler-esque <laughs> at all. No, no, Hitch had a very different uh, movie in mind. Yeah, yeah. No, they, they had two different kind of visions and Chandler would agonize about like why, like one of his big issues was, I mean, and it kind of sums it up, is, is the, the famous scene where Guy goes to murder Bruno's father. He goes, hey, Mr. Bruno, whatever your name is, you know, and it's actually Guy in the bed. There's Bruno in the bed. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Bruno, Bruno, sorry, Bruno's in the bed waiting. And he, like, Tana couldn't get over the ridiculousness of this scene. It's like f- both of the main characters are, it's completely nonsensical. A, Guy, the innocent hero, if he wanted to tell Bruno's father that your son is a psycho, just go to his office at 10 a.m. in the morning. Tell yeah. him, don't creep into his house with a revolver <laughs> where you could be shot dead by security, mauled by one of the Rottweilers, you know. And for Bruno, if you want to catch the guy out, why lie in the bed? I mean, who's to know the guy isn't going to fucking shoot yeah, you? Yeah, he has a flair for drama. Yeah, that's one thing. That's it's like Hitchcock's movies, whether you're talking about Vertigo or Rear Window or this or any. If you try to get too rigorous about what's quote unquote realistic, who the hell knows what that fucking means? We're talking about cinema, and cinema yeah. is all about like a heightened sense of experience and visual storytelling and emotion. And Hitchcock has an internal logic to his movies, but it's not based in reality at all. And so I, I totally get why they would have a clash of wills, but you have to let go of a lot of things when you're watching a Hitchcock movie. And that's part of what makes him so delirious and what makes him so wildly enjoyable so many decades later. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, like it's uh, uh, this film is amazing. Uh, it's just such a brilliant film. And yeah, I think it's one of his essential Chan- movies. I think so too. And Chandler's right. That scene is ridiculous, but it's only ridiculous if you stop, pause the vi- the film, think about it. But you don't do that because you're completely intoxicated. Yeah, it's no by how more, amazing no less it's- ridiculous than having a tennis match being incorporated into a device for triggering suspense prior to the climax of the film. I mean, it's completely, totally absurd that you have this palm-sweating drama over whether or not he's going to be able to finish off his opponent in three sets as opposed to uh, perhaps having to play like a few more or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's completely, totally ridiculous. But in the world of Hitchcock, it's one of his best sequences. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's amazing. And the same, the same, like you have that, the brilliant thing about the tennis matches, you have the, the you could a shot that would just look like nothing on the page, but it's incredible where the guy's watching the tennis match and everyone in the crowd is looking left to right except Bruno who's staring at That's him. That's one of my favorite yeah. scenes of the movie. Well, yeah, early amazing. on, he's practicing and everybody's going back and forth, back and forth, yeah. and Bruno looking like the world's biggest weirdo is just sitting there staring straight at him. And I think Bruno is one of the great villains of Hitchcock's entire filmography. He's so unusual. He's so unconventional. I mean, from the moment we meet him, where we see the cross-cutting going back and forth between the two pairs of shoes, you immediately see the contrast in personalities. And Mm. whereas Guy doesn't smoke, Bruno smokes a hell of a lot. Bruno's really jittery. Guy's very calm. When Guy Mm. looks at somebody... His eyes look right at him. When Bruno looks at somebody, his eyes go left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. I mean, everything about him is just off. But he's just so strangely 
charming and adorable as well. Like, oh, I admire people who do things. And it's just like, oh, a guy, yeah. I like you. Like, he's just, all he wants is to be Guy's friend. And I, I find this character to be one of the best villains in the history of the thriller genre. Yeah, he's amazing. He reminds, he's a bit like uh, Jim Carrey in The Cable Guy. You know, this guy who just... Cable Guy! Sort of, yeah. Cable Guy, he just attaches him to the... Pick up, uh, pick up, pick up, pick up. Okay. Which, <laughs> um, might want to... Strap yourself in there. I had a few. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I love Kibble Guy. Kibble, guys, uh, Kibble Guy deserves far more love and affection than it, than it, than it receives. Absolutely. It definitely does. Um, yeah, uh, I was reading. So they made several, a couple of changes to the book. And one is they wanted to emphasize Bruno more effete. You know, like they wanted to hint that Bruno was homosexual. Yeah, as, he, as gay as you can do in the early 50s. As gay as you can uh, do in the circumstances. 50s. So they were like, how are we going to suggest? I was like, right, he's a mummy's boy, obviously. And then they're like, just to totally seal the deal, he speaks French. I thought that was fucking hilarious. If they want to sort of carry off the character is uh, is homosexual, they just go, well, obviously he speaks French. Everyone will, well, everyone will work it out. Well, if you to do anything like this at the time, you had to be a little bit like of um, almost like a – like a smuggler, you had to be in doing really subtle ways. And if you couldn't smuggle your themes in like that, then you weren't going to get away with it. And so it's all teased. It's all through gestures and physical appearance. So you're basically bypassing the censors. And I'm always amazed that censors were so like thick headed that they were unable to detect these rather subtle traits, but it, in a weird way, makes the movies like the same thing we talked about with the big sleep in our previous one when they're talking about the double entendres about whether or not you want to have sex Ooh. from the front or the back and all that kind of nonsense. Like, what kind of dumbass do you have to be not to be able to read between the lines? But I guess those are the kinds of people who become censors. They're, they're not super bright in the first place and they have terrible taste. Yeah. And thank God so many of those uh, snuck by. You Can know? you imagine being the kind a... of person who grows up and says, I want to be a censor? Like, I want to censor books. I want to censor oh, movies yeah. or censor video Absolutely. games. Like, what kind of fucking. Who raises that kind of person? How does a, how does a person become that person where you where you think like and act like a censor? I, I, if there's if I have any ideological enemies on the planet, it would be censors and in, in, in every walk of life. Well, I agree with you to a point. But if I was living in the 1940s, I want to be a censor, so I got to see everything. Oh, true, absolutely. Yeah, you get to <laughs> like, see all the good stuff you, before you cut it. You yeah. see all the smut. It's like cinema paradiso. Putting absolutely. the bits of paper in. You know, let's yeah, take, the priest. You, know, you, you get to take home all the bits. That Chopping out, out all the kisses. The censor. Yeah. yeah, I guess maybe all censors are home. closet perverts. Yeah, so that makes sense to me. I mean, that, that would be my job if I was around the 1940s, you know. It's smut. But it's weird how it. in, the, in books you could get away with anything, and in absolutely. movies, absolutely not. I guess it also shows just how few people were reading back then because they weren't really, weren't really worried about all the all the filthiness that was taking place in uh but, but God, but you know, there's so many lines in here that are so overtly sexual. I'm amazed they got away with it. Like Hitchcock's daughter plays a, uh, a, a great role in this. Trish, I'd do anything to keep you all out of this mess. Be guided by my experience. Never lose any sleep over accusations. Unless they can be proved, of course. Dreadful business, dreadful. Poor, unfortunate girl. She was a tramp. She was a human being. Let me remind you that even the most unworthy of us has a right to life in the pursuit of happiness. From what I hear, she pursued it in all directions. Barbara. 
I mean, <laughs> that is a scandalous line, and it's vintage Hitchcock. And the fact that it's his daughter playing the part makes it all the better. Yeah, she she's brilliant uh, in it as well with the glasses and the whole rigmarole. Yeah, the script is outrageous. Like there's a lot of, all the double entendres are great, but the whole rigmarole with the, the spectacles, and um, you know when Bruno strangles. Um, and again, that's another clash between Chandler and like the whole why is he strangling her? Is it like Hitchcock's? I don't fucking care. I want to shoot the murder reflected in these glasses that fall on the floor, and it looks absolutely incredible. And they did this whole um, it's one of the best shots of his career, yeah. The other one is like, uh, there's there's a when he gets a telephone call, another, another shot he'd construct in his head. They get the telephone call to say that uh, the the guy's ex-wife has been murdered, and the phone is in the foreground, but and it's huge, and it's like uh, you know she she walked and maybe the room was too small or whatever they couldn't they didn't have enough uh, uh, depth of field, so he had an oversized phone made, and as the camera <laughs> as the camera zooms towards her, the phone goes out of frame, and there's a there's a uh, there's a like a best boy or like an art director there someone props person holding a regular phone she picks up kind of remind me of the naked gun where they have the exact same shot but he goes up and picks it up and it is actually a huge <laughs> phone it's just a fucking massive phone there's, again i like to think of that of a homage to hitchcock where he would do this like sort of construct these um brilliant visual sort of design um, like the amazing shot where um She's been strangled in the reflection of the glasses, which is actually this perspex oversized glasses that they made. But again, it, it's wonderful, but it's also so ridiculous. The climax is like they have time to get to there because Bruno won't go onto this island till it gets dark. Nobody what time does it get him. dark around here? What time does it get dark? It keeps saying, Whoa, five more minutes till it gets dark until no one will be able to see me. It's like, you're talking to everyone, asking them the time. They're all going to know you were here when this woman is murdered. That's so I mean, the last like 20, 30 minutes of this is so delightful and so fast paced. And there's like this give and take where both of them keep encountering obstacles. Like initially guys kicking all kinds of ass on the tennis court, but then his opponent who actually was his instructor to get him prepared for the movie starts catching up and starts winning some sets. But at the same time, Bruno, he's got this huge lead. He ends up dropping the lighter down in the sewer grate. And then you have one of the least realistic, but one of the most dramatically compelling moments in Hitchcock's career where Bruno's reaching through a grate. That's about like Mm. maybe at most like three quarters of an inch wide. And yet, all we see is the frame of his fingers going closer, 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 closer to the lighter. In reality, like he would have to have that his like he would have to be down through that grate up to like his shoulder, having scraped all the flesh from the bone. And even then, he'd probably be scraping like bone splinters off. But because all we see is the frame and the fingers and the lighter, we just roll with it because emotionally it makes sense, even if physically it makes zero sense. And it's just, I love the cross-cutting back and forth between, two, between these two characters as they're basically racing to this island. It's why Hitch is remembered as fondly as he is because only he knows how to play with the magic of cinema in, in such a fashion. Yeah, it's fucking, it's thrilling. It's like, and I, and I, and I watch, watching it, I'd kind of forgotten about that bit. And it's, and it's, oh no, poor old guy, he's got to get past it, you know, and Bruno's miles ahead of him. And the guy just bumps him and he drops the lighter, the whole thing. And I love the fact that, it could, and I mean, that's a very Chandler-esque touch, the way that he doesn't make things easy, you know, things are never, everything is wrapped up in the end of this, but the whole way, the fact that 
just because you're the bad guy, don't think you know you're going to have it easy. And just because you're the good guy, don't think you're both going to go through hell. Pitch loves to make the audience gasp for the killer, like in Psycho when Norman Bates is trying to push the car into the swamp and it's sinking, and suddenly it stops, and the audience is like, "He's going to get caught." It's like you just Mm. saw this guy butcher fucking Janet Lee, and now Mm. you're like complicit and worried about he's going to get caught. Same thing here, Bruno is a madman <laughs> and he's a total murderous psychopath. psychopath and yet we're feeling tension and anxiety on his behalf. Yeah. Um, another reason that I love this film so much and I've completely forgotten about it when I, cause it's not a big detail just is, is so when guys playing the tennis match, he's got to beat this guy, you know, and lots of tension because the guy wins a set back and all that. But in all, in order for him to, to get there, uh, the daughter Patricia Hitchcock, arrange, you know, because does the, does the sort of I guess Irish American detective Brannigan or something is his name, and he's 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 trailing guys. So first she's got to lose him, and they arrange this elaborate way to get him out with a taxi that's waiting with a pair of pants on the back seat because Bruno can just grab his sports jacket yep. and then run run for the door, but obviously he's wearing his. Uh, uh, whitey tighty tennis shorts and he needs to jump in there and pull on his pants and that has a special significance for me because about two or three years ago I was, I was going to I was going to a big um, I was going to sort of an industry event in the Marker Hotel here in Dublin and it was a black tie event or was it, you had to wear a suit and uh, a couple of years before that I'd, I'd I'd got a voucher from somewhere I was working and with a couple of hundred dollars on it, or, or euros, sorry. Uh, and I decided to buy myself a suit. So I went into Arnott's, which is a lovely haberdashery shop here, and I, I bought myself a three-piece suit. And, you know, a few alterations had to be made, you know, because of my, because of my frame. And uh, it, was, it was at a waistcoat, has, I still have it. Uh, and um, they said, oh, yeah, we'll just change this, take this in, whatever. And um, so I dropped in to pick it up and I picked up the suit. I dropped down at work at lunchtime. I dropped down to pick up the suit and brought it back to work with me. And then when I finished work, I came home here and I had a shower and I was thrown on the suit to go in. And I took it out and there were no pants in the suit. So So I was standing in my bedroom wearing like a dress shirt, black tie, a waistcoat. And my boxer shorts and my socks. And it just happened to be a Thursday. And in Dublin, it's late night opening. Thursdays, shop don't close, shops don't close till 8 o'clock. So I rang Arnott's and I got through to the department in the store that sold me. And I said, here, I'm going to an important event here. And I'm standing here in my boxer shorts. And I got this suit this morning, paid quite a lot of money for it. And there's no pants in it. And the guy went into the back and he went, oh, yeah, they're here. They're hanging on a rail. They're on another hanger. And I was like, well, this is a problem. You know, you need, you need to do something here. You need to get those pants and put them into a taxi and send them to my house. And he's like, yeah, I'll just have to ring my boss and get the OK. I was like, no, 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 no. You need, you need to do that now. Exactly. And anyway, he, so he had to go and call his boss. And I was stand, and he's like, yeah, yeah, that's OK. And I had to pay for the taxi. But. I subsequently went back into the store and got the money back. So a taxi pulled up outside my house here and I walked out. I put on a pair of jeans just to, you know, and, the, and on the passenger seat of the taxi was my, and I went, oh, they're my pants. And he handed them to me. 
through the window and I walked in. So when I saw the Hitchcock scene with the pair of pants on the back seat, I was kind of nostalgic for that and thinking, that's a bit of a long-winded story. Yeah, but I know, it is. I like those, it, though, yeah. It's, it's one of those moments in a movie where you have a little chuckle to yourself. It's just, it just reflects something. So I thought that was hilarious. The whole, the whole way he gets there, the whole drama of it, the whole cross, you know, one guy's ahead and then the other guy's ahead is amazing. Yeah, um, this is what this is what this is what Hitch does. I just found this great quote uh, by Chandler talking about his experiences with Hitchcock. Was, obviously, you mentioned it was not a happy experience for him, and he said like, he was kind of thrown off by how preoccupied Hitchcock was with the visual development of the of the movie. And Chandler said he preferred to work with a director who realizes that what is said and how it is said is more important than shooting it upside down through a glass of champagne. Like you can't better capture their differences because obviously for Hitchcock what is said is far less important than shooting it upside down through a glass of champagne that's the essence of Hitchcock is these wildly implausible shots and it just it sums it up so perfectly and yeah I know Chandler enjoyed calling him like like a fat bastard and he enjoyed kind of laughing at him and Hitchcock would struggle to get in and out of a car so on and so forth and apparently from what I've read here is that um, when Ben Hecht was unsuccessfully recruited to work on the script, and Ben Hecht is one of the all-time great screenwriters, mm. he suggested his assistant, I believe his name is Chenzi Ormond. Chenzi so, Ormond. Yeah, Chenzi Ormond. Yeah. He is credited as a second author, but apparently he deserves the lion's share of the credit for the, the final shooting script and was much more Hitch's speed, but obviously he did not have the name and the prestige of Raymond Chandler, who brought a touch of class to the, uh, to the proceedings. Yeah, again, uh, so Chandler said he wanted his name taken off the lady in the lake because he didn't feel that it, even though it's his script essentially yep. whereas here he debated taking his name off it but the producers said no fucking way because if it's got raymond chandler's name on it it's gonna attract a certain audience it's gonna help with the box office but i've just been reading um there's a new biography by a guy called tom williams about him i was reading up and there's quite a lot of chandler like the whole bit of the of the the two pairs of feet meeting at the beginning and your track on one and track that's all in Chandler's script, you know, and a lot of the stuff from that end into the film, just that uh Chenzi Orman's script is a lot shorter. Gotcha. Because Hitchcock wanted to, you know, not expand it it's it's life with the boring bits taken out. You know, like it's 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 tighter, leaner. Um Chenzi Orman obviously deserves a lot of credit for knocking the script into shape but i think there's probably a little you know it's not it's not as uh, he's not as uninvolved with it as they say uh being a kind of perfectionist and everything he just said look take my name off it and they said no what pissed him off really a lot was that chenzi ormond and chandler had the same agent and uh, chandler's <laughs> he wrote a letter uh, in a letter afterwards he said it's bad enough being stabbed in the back without your own agent supplying the knife. Which was, uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, uh, he subsequently fired his agent after that and moved to someone else. Um, but yeah, they they two two completely contrasting styles, um, but makes for a fucking incredible movie. But what always brings me back to Hitch is there's no better there's no director ever who's better suited for exploring the world of the idle class, people who don't have to work, where their mm. vocation is more a, a choice, If you're whether you're a tennis player or a senator, or whatever the case might be. You don't have to do these things. You just choose to do these things. And I love how in this environment of the idle rich, 
He's got murderers and psychopaths kind of lurking around every corner. And the fact that Bruno is able to kind of bullshit his way into this party being hosted by the senator, we're in the middle of the party. He's talking about murder. You're going to do a murder. How are you going to do it? That's the fascinating part. How are you going to do it? I didn't get your name. Mrs. Cunningham. Mrs. Cunningham. How are you going to do it? Well, I suppose I'll have to get a gun from somewhere. Oh, no, Mrs. Cunningham. Bang, bang, bang all over the place. Blood everywhere. How about a little poison? Oh, that's better. That's better, Mrs. Uh... Anderson. Oh, that's better, Mrs. Anderson. Uh but you see, Mrs. Cunningham's in a dreadful hurry. Poison could take anywhere from 10 to 12 weeks if poor Mr. Cunningham is going to die from natural causes. <laughs> you know, I read of a case once. I think it would be a wonderful idea. I can take him out in the car, and when we get to a very lonely spot, knock him on the head with a hammer, pour gasoline over him and over the car, and set the whole thing ablaze. <laughs> then have to walk all the way home. Oh, no, no, no. I have the best way and the best tools. Simple, silent, and quick. The silent part being the most important. Let me show you what I mean. You don't mind if I borrow your neck for a moment, do you? Oh, it is not for long. Now, when I nod my head, you just try to cry out, and I'll bet you can't do it. All right, now. Just wait for the nod of my head. Only Hitchcock knows how to explore the, the, the world, this world, so effectively and so charmingly, because even though we are talking about killers, we all want to be a part of this world and have cocktails and hang out and fall in love with beautiful people. But I guess there's a little bit of it in here that's not about that world. Like when they go to the carnival the first time and Bruno's following Guy's wife and she's got two of her fellows with her, you can tell there's a little bit more of like kind of like the, the, the lower class of the world and the way she's like licking her ice cream cone like it's like this giant erect penis and so on and so forth. And so you do get a little bit of like the high and the low in this. But yeah, I don't know if there's ever been a filmmaker alive who's known how to tackle this kind of material better than Hitch and you know the master of suspense is such a cliche at this point but goddamn every time you revisit one of his essential movies he earn he re-earns that that title all over again like every one of these movies it's so good that it spawns you know throw mama from a train or yep. you know it's been that everyone knows that was Chris my first Cross, exposure to that scene the crisscross scene which crisscross right. now it's like it's part of the movie history but i saw throw mama from a train in the theater when i was like 11 or 12 i had no idea what strangers on a train was i had no idea who hitchcock was at that time i think i'd seen alfred hitchcock presents on tv so i kind of knew vaguely who he was but yeah it was wasn't until college that i saw strangers on a train yeah it's uh funny all the references in popcorn i, I uh, watching a i found an episode Got the show Peep Show. You know Peep Show, that UK TV show. Have you ever seen that I show? I've not seen it. Peep Show. It's a, it's a very funny Channel Four about these two losers in a flat. One of them is kind of very straight guy, works in an office. The other is the kind of slacker who thinks he's in a band. Uh, the two of them are talking to me. He goes, "Jeremy, have you ever seen Strangers in a Train?" Uh, and he goes, uh, "It's about these two guys who take care of each other's enemies." And, and his mate says, "Oh right, what happens in the end?" He goes, oh, "I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure it turns out all right." Because <laughs> 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 they haven't quite got to the uh, the end bit, but yeah, it was funny that it just crisscrossed this this 
it's wormed its way into popular culture. Oh, it's such um, a perfect premise for a thriller, though. I mean, it's like two people meet on a train. One of them's a maniac and suggests that they take each, take out, take care of each other's murders for each other. It's as, as it's as Hollywood as you get. And I wish Hollywood would get back in the business of doing these kind of delightful, charming, stylish, sophisticated thrillers. It's yeah, it's high concept and the details that really uh, like so the end is absolutely incredible with the carousel going round and the guy crawling underneath it. He actually was a circus. Uh, worker and seriously so in danger of getting it, his head and seriously off. in danger yeah hitchcock had said if the guy had raised his head a couple of inches it would have just been a horror movie yeah uh, hitch uh, never did a shot like that ever again and was sweating profusely he was terrified that the, he had unleashed this dangerous shot but what i love about it with you see you know you, you when you have high moments of tension like that you need a bit of leveling the, the, you cut to this woman in the crowd she's oh my god my baby my boys are and it cuts to the kid and he's laughing he's yeah. loving it and i love it's how he gets best. in on the action like bruno and guy are fighting and the kid starts getting in on it and then bruno like i guess throws the kid and so guys having to save him but i just started howling with glee it was so goddamn funny there's so much emotion and excitement and entertainment value and intensity in that that sequence is as exhilarating as any sequence you care to mention from that entire decade of movies yeah like she's absolutely petrified going oh my boy my baby and the kid is obviously going this is the best fucking ride i've ever been on yeah. so exciting and i get to see a fight in front of me and everything you know it's, it's all his sort of dreams and i love the idea that this carousel even has the capacity to go fast enough where guy would be hanging onto a bar with his feet suspended out in the air almost like something like nasa would have for like training astronauts like in, like in high gravity and it's just and you know bruno's kicking his hand it's just it's as is completely delicious and as pure raw cinema, which is like the only way I can describe it. And I, I've seen this movie at least like 10 times now and it gets better every goddamn time I see it. Yeah. That's pretty turbocharged at the end. It's incredible. What I love, uh, when the whole thing collapses to bits and Bruno's sort of mortally wounded, I love that he's evil to the end because oh, yeah. it's Hitchcock. Un- it's unrepentant. And he, unrepentant. And he, you know, guy comes over to him and, and Bruno looks up and goes, Oh, guy, they caught you. <laughs> He's <laughs> going to bring him down. He's going to bring him down with him. As they would say in double indemnity, right down the line, like, you know, to the, to the end. He, I, I, I love unrepentant villains, villains who enjoy being villains or don't even know they're villains. They're the heroes of their own story. And Bruno definitely doesn't, from Bruno's perspective, he's the victim. Like when he's talking about his father, he's like, he hates me. <laughs> just yes. His delivery. And it's sadly Robert Walker's last movie role. He died of some weird allergic reaction to some medicine he received uh, like eight months later but he's you know obviously the stuff of movie legend after playing this role i guess my one knock against his movies i'm not a big farley granger fan i've I've seen him in a lot of movies i've never liked him in anything and i know they were thinking about getting william holden but he was unavailable part of me wishes william holden had been in there but in spite of uh, the movie's very very minor flaws i think this deserves to be mentioned alongside any classic Hitchcock people care to mention. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, the details in it, like the, the, the scene where he goes into the house, and we say it's the completely ridiculous scene if you want to tell the father that your son is a psychopath. There is a thing called a fucking telephone. Yeah. But anyway, you know, he, he, so he goes into the house and there's the dog at the top of the stairs, like the omen. And that just, weird you know, close-up when it licks his hand. Weird, it's just like the scene where hands. Grace Kelly uh, kisses it's, Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window when he wakes up yeah. and she moves in for that strange kind of awkward close-up where it kind of goes into slow motion. Same thing happens here when the dog decides to lick his hand. 
But it's like it's cranked in the camera into slow motion. Yeah, like, exactly. Like they, it's they... normal speed, and then it switches to slow motion with no lighting change visible. Like it's you don't see an edit. Maybe there is an edit, but it, it's so smooth. It just looks like one shot in normal speed that suddenly cranks to slow motion and then back again. Yeah, it's just really weird hypnotic moment, and it's it's they're all the bits that you know, there wouldn't be in a challenge or screenplay because yep. that's not, you know, what what he's going to deliver. Yeah. Hitchcock tells stories with pictures and Chandler tells his stories with words. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, that's kind of where where Chandler's writing career with Hollywood finished up. I mean, he saw the finished pick. I mean, I think when Chandler worked in pictures like this and they were a success, it kind of bugged him a little bit, you know. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, the film was a big success and, and was one of the first films, as you say, for um, Hitchcock to go on this big run. This, yeah. big incredible... this is the beginning of one of the best 10 year hot streaks in movies. I mean, he, from the mid thirties to the mid forties, he made a lot of good ones, things like 39 steps or lifeboat or the lady vanishes or Rebecca or uh, um, shadow of a doubt. I mean, there's some really good ones that I love from that 35 to 45 period. And then in the late 40s, I kind of cool off on his movies a bit. But starting with this and then, like I said, up through Marnie, it's like, oh, my God, can you you cannot do any wrong. And so it's, it's absolutely incredible. And I, I just love how we got to kind of backdoor our way into Hitchcock through Raymond Chandler. And so I just can't thank enough for making this pitch. But, yeah, we're coming up at the three-hour mark, so it's time for the, uh, the closing remarks by the great Simon yeah. O'Neill. Oh God, yeah. Well, I'm going to make this brief because I, I got ramble up. But but yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting way into these movies. Chandler is one of America's greatest writers, not one of America's great crime writers. He's one of the great crime writers. Yeah, great writer, full stop. Great writer, full stop. Read read the books. Um, a few things just before we knock him on the head. Uh, we certainly kicked him to death. But uh, Billy Wilder. And then later in his career, in the 90s, I read, he was interviewed and he said, the, all the people he worked with in Hollywood, the only two people that constantly he was asked about working with were Marilyn Monroe and Raymond Chandler. <laughs> and he's like, I mean, Marilyn Monroe, you can understand. I mean, she's blonde bombshell. She's an American icon. But Raymond Chandler, it's less it's less obvious. Like, uh, And I, I think it's because they both... Um, reinvented themselves and america is the place where no matter who you are you can reinvent yourself and she was the sort of mousy brunette norma jean and she became this platinum blonde bombshell and chandler was like basically a washed up alcoholic accountant who decided to become this incredible writer tales a spinner of yarns yeah but also the person who invented an entire world like a genre like if you become an adjective People say Chandler-esque. Absolutely. Everyone knows what you're talking about. Someone say Lynchian, a Lynchian film. Yeah, you know what you're talking about. There are only a handful yeah. of storytellers who get their own adjective, and Chandler absolutely is one. And you and you don't like you know you don't have Chan- if you don't have Chandler, uh, you you don't have Chinatown. You know if you don't have Chandler, you don't have L.A. Noir. You don't have L.A. Confidential. You don't have all of these movies. You know they all owe a debt to him, even though he wasn't involved with the making of some of the films, the atmosphere that he created is so dense and so perfect that filmmakers keep going back to it over and over again. And as we've been talking this time around, his invention, his adventures in Hollywood 
were equally as influential, not just on his movies, but the movies he worked on. Um, Double Indemnity is like it's in the top five film noirs ever. The Blue Dahlia, a flawed masterpiece, you know, not masterpiece, but flawed movie, but still some brilliant atmospherics. And Strangers on a Train, whatever his degree of involvement with it, it's one of the great movies. But after he finished with that, then he could go off and he'd sucked Hollywood for all the money that he could. He, 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 yeah, so after he, that, he can go listen to classical music and drink as much as he likes. Well, what he really did was he took this in 1954, he released The Long Goodbye, which is his greatest novel. I urge you to read it. It is absolutely the, the, the um, equivalent of anything classical literature. And then, you know, his wife died the following year and, and he died in 1959. 13 people went to his funeral. You know, he had 60,000 dollars in his bank account which is a lot of money but compared to the money that he's generated over the decades since uh, is is pretty paltry he had uh, the suitcase that he carried with him he had 13 pages of poodle springs which we talked about the novel that was finished by robert b parker but just in, in terms of his hollywood um i just want to wrap up here because i found this quote he after he was in hollywood he wrote a couple of articles for atlantic magazine uh, one of them was called Writers in Hollywood, which was all about his experiences and the producers and how they, you know, didn't look after the writer and the integrity of the idea and screenplay and all this sort of thing. But then he wrote this article called A Qualified Farewell, which is pretty much him saying goodbye to the movies. And the closing paragraph is, it kind of sums up how he talks about the movies. He said, I bid you farewell. I've enjoyed writing this piece, although essentially I know it is a testament of failure. If it were merely a personal failure, the piece would not be worth writing. I think it is much more. A man does not deliberately turn his back on what I could get out of Hollywood from motives of personal pique or overinflated vanity. Such moods pass. Mine has been with me for a long time. I have a sense of exile from thought, a nostalgia of the quiet room and the balanced mind. I am a writer. And there comes a time when that which I write has to belong to me, has to be written alone and in silence, with no one looking over my shoulder, no one telling me a better way to write it. It doesn't have to be great writing. It doesn't even have to be terribly good. It just has to be mine. And, that's, and with that, he decided bye-bye Hollywood and headed for the uh, hills of La Hala with Sissy. Well, I can't think of a better or stronger note to end the episode on than that. So where can people find you online if they want to talk more and so on and so forth? Well, they can find me on Twitter. I'm not particularly active on it there, but they can find me at at Sim underscore O'Neill, Simon O'Neill. They can look at, uh, I've got a website, simononeill.org, where there are various short films, uh, smutty short films or, you know, uh, comedic short films and ads and bits and pieces of projects and they're really only the two places as i said i'm not not uh, on the gram yet or snapchat or tiktok so chinese government well, is not i am keen on the idea of tackling bud schulberg and that would be a that would be a big one because and I've read What Makes Sammy Run twice. I might have to reread that before we tackle it. But Bud Schulberg's a figure who's fascinated me for years. And I feel like you could just do On the Waterfront, Facing the Crowd, and talk about some of his books. And that would be a killer episode as well. So count me in if you ever want to do the deep dive on that remarkable writer's career. Uh, yeah, well, On the Waterfront's my favorite films of all time. I've oh, seen beautiful. It in the cinema twice. Done and, done, uh, done, and done. So yeah, I, I would uh, I can certainly dig into that. And as I say, uh, the the novel 
uh, Anthony Burgess. The reason I thought it was Anthony Burgess is because there's a quote from Anthony Burgess on the cover of the novel, and he says he reads it at least once every year, or he did. It's that good. So Bud Shulberg was uh, not like Chandler's more known for his novels rather than screenplays, whereas Bud Shulberg the other way around. But Bud Shulberg is an incredible novelist. I mean, a writer's a writer. Absolutely. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down the flicks and definitely ch- hunt down Raymond Chandler's books. But if you did enjoy this podcast, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating review wherever you might be listening to it. And if you want some more content in the short term, hunt down my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock. But we can't thank you enough for listening to the episode. We hope you enjoyed it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.